Okay, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Wassalatu Wassalam ala Rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the latest Ilmfeed podcast episode where we meet inspiring Muslims from our community who we can benefit from. And my guest today fits squarely into that category. My guest today is Sister Samira Bhatt. She's the head teacher of Al Noor Primary School, one of the best schools in the UK, mashallah, uh, where she has served since 2003. Uh, she is also a long-standing board member of the Association of Muslim Schools, UK. Uh, she was a science teacher and graduated from Imperial College in physics, where she also compete, completed a master's in theoretical physics. Samira has delivered circles and been involved in Dawah in the community for a long time, mashallah. She's also the mother of four children and a grandmother to three granddaughters, mashallah. Assalamu alaikum, Samira. <laughs> alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Yeah, they're at home at the moment waiting for me. <laughs> you know, when you, when you mentioned that to me, it was like, oh my God, I just, I, I just hadn't realised that so much time had gone past. Yeah, actually. doesn't it? Yeah, it, it goes by so quickly. Yeah, because yeah. I think we met, didn't we, um, at school. Mm. We met at school um, at Islamia when... Yeah. I was a slightly older sixth form student. Yeah. I, I had taken two years out after GCSEs and come back. Mm. And you were a science teacher there, right? Science teaching and sixth form lead at the time. Yeah. Mashallah. Yeah. And um, it feels like yesterday to me. Or I love that, you know, you have phases or stages in your life. And, and that was a few epochs ago. <laughs> and, and here we are. I today. just remember you feeding two little kids <laughs> after school. <laughs> you know, you had the. You had, Anisa and your son yeah. and you would just be feeding them yeah. uh, a snack after school and yeah. and mashallah with you is uh, Hudayfa your son mm-hmm. who you were head teacher of right yeah he was at the primary <laughs> school mashallah yeah. he was at the primary school and he's studying law at the moment mashallah mm. um, and he was also a mentor at your school I hear Yes, he's he's done some some volunteering at the school actually a number of times now, um, and that's wonderful because we like to bring back in our ex pupils to inspire the next generation. Obviously, I'm getting a bit um, advanced in my years, and children feel inspired by by youngsters, and it's lovely to have ex pupils come back and yeah. speak to pupils, and mentor them, give them an example, um, and become role models for them. Of course, we all are as staff, but it's extra special when you get youngsters back in to do that. So it's an honour for me to bring him back in, and um, obviously make good use. Of him at the school. <laughs> I remember Hudayfa as head boy uh, of um, head of uh, what was it? Or head council? It was head of head of the school council, student right. council, head okay. of student council. Mm. But the way you spoke and the way you you conducted yourself, I actually thought you were head boy. So mashallah. <laughs> uh, of my son's school. So mashallah, you know, you've, you've been a really great role model. Um, I'm always telling my sons, you know, uh, about former students at the school and saying, yeah. you know, remember so-and-so, you've got to be like them. And so, Jazakallah yeah. Khairan for coming as well. Yeah. Um, Samira, just um, while we were praying out there, I actually started feeling quite emotional because, like, we stood very close together, feet to feet, shoulder to shoulder. And I remember that that's what we used to do in the 90s. And um, since then, I guess I've been... Uh, in different circles of Muslims and mm. and uh, who don't necessarily do that practice. Mm. Um, and it kind of took me back to the 90s and it just reminded me of that, um, of, of some of the more positive aspects of that time, yeah. which were 
sisterhood, mm-hmm. that desire to follow the sunnah, that mm-hmm. real kind of um, mm-hmm. fervor, I think, you know, and yeah. just that closeness we used to feel when we used to pray together. Because mm-hmm. uh, now sometimes, you know, when you try to get close to your, to a sister in salah, mm-hmm. they sometimes pull away, away right? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so you can see that the culture's changed. Yeah. But it's also about knowledge as well yeah. and about intention. Um, mm. And what we witnessed today was um, the promise of Allah in the prayer and the sunnah. Um, and clearly, whatever the Prophet Hassan did and instructed us was of benefit to us. Um, and certainly in the realm of ibadah, if we allow it to seep into us, if we allow it to affect us, if we try to stand in khushu, um, if we have sincerity that we are praying in a particular way because just in an endeavor to follow the Prophet وسلم, because we love Allah, we want Allah to love us, then we'll reap the benefits. We'll start to taste some of the sweetness of that. And, and that's the mercy. Allah knows he, he created us um, and he, Al-Khaliq, um, made us in a certain form, in a certain way, and he knows what will affect our hearts. One of the things to stand close together when engaged in worship. MashaAllah. Yeah, it just really took me back to that time. and. I mean, I, I, I started to think, you know, I've never really um, met a sister for, I haven't met a sister for a long time mm. who was active in Dawah during the 90s and, you know, beyond, um, who I could ever sort of share notes with, I guess, and kind of reflect on what were the positives of that time? Because sometimes, like, we hear about the negatives of that time. You know, yeah. there was a lot of division in yeah. some ways and there was a lot of um, toxic... Yeah. type you know name calling and mm-hmm. pointing fingers and ghulu, that kind of thing in some ways it was a ghulu yeah and, and it was an immaturity of um you've uh, used the word our very generally very loosely but of our iman as a community and our knowledge but i think there was also that freshness that sincerity that desire to worship Allah, that desire to do the right thing. Um, unfortunately, in some cases, it seemed to translate into to do the right thing, to be seen of other people, and to know you're on the sunnah and you're, you know, uh, you know, and that's the struggle each of us are constantly going through. Why, why do we do what we do? Why do we um, say what we say? Why do we hold ourselves in the way we hold ourselves and behave in the way we do? Is it to, to impress people? Is it so that people will say of us, um, wow, or um, say of us, or not criticise us? Are we scared of the people? Uh, do we care about what they think about, or is it about Allah? Now, of course, in in life, there's a balance to be struck, isn't there? There is a little bit of caring about what the people say. There is a little bit of that. That's re- but we don't let that supersede the ultimate intention for everything, which should be the, seeking the face of Allah, seeking his pleasure. Um, and so there was there was all of that in that immaturity. There was a lot. But then who am I to judge anybody else and what they... I, I can't see inside their hearts. We, we can't see what was you know each person's intention for why they behaved the way they did or made the mistake they did or became you know a, a little bit ghulu. Uh, I'm going to use that word rather than another... <laughs> <laughs> has better connotations yeah. I think for those who understand the word um, you know why those things happened but at the end of the day there was the positivity when people turn to Allah when they want to know what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Quran what does um, yeah. what did the prophets say what did he do and um, those things were positive there was a rawness I think I, like recently a, a PhD student interviewed me for her like her PhD and uh, thesis and she said she was asking me about that time like what is it about the generation that grew up in the UK, mm. so the children of the immigrants, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're one of those, right? Mm, mm. Uh, same as me. Mm. Um, what was it about us that instead of becoming more diluted as mm. a community, right, mm. and le- losing our iman and mm. basically assimilating or, you know, 
what was it about us that actually it was the opposite? That we mm. actually, in many cases, mm. uh, the parents were not the religious ones or not particularly knowledgeable. And then the children of those immigrants ended up having so much more yeah. fervor, so much more kind of uh, visible adoption of Islam. So what are your thoughts on that? Quite complicated. I'm not a yeah. sociologist <laughs> or a behavioral <laughs> scientist, but... Um, just your reflection. A lot, a lot of the those. If you think about what people are going through, what, what children are going through in mm. my generation or before me, um, you know, you don't quite belong, do you? And the, you know, the messages, mm. that, the feedback that you get from society constantly about uh, who you are. You know, you're told on the one hand you're a full and equal British citizen, but on the other hand, your lived experience sort of tells you back. No, actually, you need to be different uh, 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 um, here, and you need to behave differently there, and you're not going to be accepted there. Um, and as you leave school, that becomes more and more of a reality. And I think children uh, go through that experience and that affects the way they see the world. For some children, it will allow them, if they have their world, if they have each foot in a different cultural and religious, well, different cultural heritage, it will allow them to be able to take the bigger picture view of that. Um, not everybody, but a number did. And a number of them did stand back and... and, and um, have a look at that picture and try to find their own sense of identity and purpose within that. Um, and perhaps that's some of it. That's some of it, you know. At the end of the day, of course, there were some fantastic things in traditional parenting, traditional families, um, things that constantly, as we move further and further away from previous generations, we tend to start, we tend to see increasing views. Perhaps that's about living in more and more of a consumerist sort of model of society. Um, the more that we, we you know, grow up and, and, and emerge into this sort of consumerist vision for the family, um, the more that we become materialistic, the more that we lose our connection with Allah, lose our um, ability to be able to see his signs around us, uh, a connection to the divine. And as that happens, then you know, the world takes over and, and, and the the concerns of the world take over. Um, and I think in previous generations where people knew how to knit, sew, use, you know, grow food in the land. And so, you know, our, our parents had those skills. Yeah. And, and we thought, I remember thinking, this is really boring, but learning to weed, learning to plant things, learning to grow, even though not very much came back, um, learning to knit, even though I never made anything very much. I think I may have knitted a jumper once. Um, but all of those skills um, that I learned from my mother, yeah. um, am I passing them on now to my children? And uh, as mm. a grandmother, to, you know, is my daughter passing them on to, to, to her children? And, and, you know, you see this dilution of people being able to live independently from a supermarket. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, so it made me wonder what you, your experience of growing up was like. Were, were you a Londoner? Did yeah. you grow up in London? Which area yeah. of London? Leighton. Leighton, East okay. London. Um, yeah. My, what was that like? What was that like? Well, back then, um, and this is some time ago, <laughs> um, it was still, um, I, 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 you know, grew up through the 70s and I was sort of aware of things through the 80s and that's where I was going to school, etc. Um, and... 80s was a time of multiculturalism, but proceeding mm. that alongside with that, there was a lot of open racism actually on the streets before it really? became illegal. So as a child in the 70s, I remember my mother 
being um, spat at by a group of uh, um, individuals who are walking behind us. Uh, I actually, I, I think this is a story I heard back from my sisters who'd gone with my mother to the park. So mm. I don't think I actually witnessed it, but I was horrified when I got home and they told me that mm. they were calling them, of course, the usual um, yeah. uh, terms of reference at, at that time for anybody who was brown, anybody else that they could get away with saying it to. Um, and, um, and, and spat, actually, at my mother. Um, and... Those things were not un uncommon. And I think a lot of people at that time, the 70s and 80s, my mother was very risk-averse. She was kept us in. She was very risk-averse. And I think a lot of people were. A lot of people from, you know, different communities, Muslim communities that were settling down and living here, were quite risk-averse. They were sort of... Pakistani background, is that...? My, yeah, my, my mm. own family, my mother and father, mm. yeah, yeah. What I was thinking about was if you did live in another country, mm. as in the country from maybe where... Um, and are going further up the family tree, they they resided from Pakistan or wherever. Mm -hmm. Do you think your mother would have been so risk averse living there, less, given given the cultural differences between those places and mm -hmm. where we live now? Mm -hmm. I think she would have been less, but she is a bit as a person. She's quite risk averse. Yeah. I, think, be a I think referencing trend. the point you made earlier about how it didn't lead to a dilution of our beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, I think that whether it's subconsciously or they did it explicitly, expressly and, you know, intending to do it, it kind of created sub-communities or communities within communities where people already felt um, left out and different given their cultural differences from wherever they migrated from coming mm. here. Mm. And for the more inquisitive of the individuals, um, not to say that there aren't people who aren't inquisitive, um, that led those individuals to wonder what, what gives rise to these cultural differences and what gives rise to a certain right. way of living here compared to a certain way of living there. You know, right. what, and yeah, there were others as well <coughs> who wanted so much to fit in yeah. right. and not be for them. Exactly. The drivers were all about fitting in or, or even eating of the fruit you know, of, of society and being yeah. getting to the top there and doing whatever it takes. I think takes to probably that ultimately leads to a question of what grounds the way the people there mm. do live mm. and what grounds the way the people here live. And obviously you referenced it previously that what grounds the way we live here in the West, whether that's here or America or any you know, Western European country, it's um, the whole notion of capitalism and um, consumerism, you know, to live in the now, you know, purchase now, enjoy your time now because mm. you don't know what might come in the future and it's best to just, you know, enjoy well, yourself that, now. That, that sort of, um, it's not just capitalism and consumerism, um, but they're all sorts as, of As broader strange... concepts, yeah. I think. I don't know what you think about this. <clears throat> Let me know what you think. But my reflection on it is that... Uh, Growing up in the UK, we were faced with the question, who am I? You know, and, and any time a person is forced to ask themselves that question, they look around for the answer. And and for us, I think we we would have thought about, you know, our heritage, but then also the big questions of life. You know, like, how am I going to view this? Am I going to view having a girlfriend? Am I going to view, you know, all the different things that as a young person you face? You ask yourself and then you go home and then you either talk to your parents about it um, and they give you an answer or you start researching. And I think one of the great things about growing up in Britain was this emphasis on reading, this emphasis on critical thinking, um, questioning. And I think so, so much of what our generation learned was through books not necessarily through our parents. Yeah, we did a lot of reading. Our parents <laughs> taught us another aspect, yeah. which was very important. Mm -hmm. uh, like you, you but not everybody's a reader. Not, not, yeah. not everybody's a reader. Um, well, sometimes it was other people at mm. school, right? Mm. Well, I think for me, it was... Uh, you know, all of that was part of the journey, but for, <laughs> for me, 
mine was, and you know, all praises for Allah, and and obviously the Prophet is our inspiration and example and the companions after them, and we just offer whatever little stories we, we do. But um, for me, it was the lap of my mother. My mother taught us um, Iman on yeah. her lap, and she told us about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, she told us about heaven and hell, and I took that to heart as a very, very young child. By the mercy, by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he answered my mother's dua, etc. And um, I can never thank my mother enough because that was such a deeply rooted iman from such a young age. I used to make dua. Um, I'd ask her about, <laughs> okay, so how long do we have to be in hell if we're bad and we go to hell? And, um, well, if we were in hell, I'd imagine, I'd imagine all of these things. And I'd start to say, well... You know, if I really asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm really sorry now, and would we be able to leave? So I had all of these conversations with, with my mother. And um, it's funny, you know, I, I just sort of remember back how even as a child, you'd almost think it's it's so easy to get to hell. <laughs> this Easier. negativity that, that creeps in, strange yeah. that, strange. But... Um, well, alhamdulillah, by the mercy of Allah, my, my mother, you know, by the mercy of Ar-Rahman, you know, who gives hidayah to whoever he wills. You know, this, this sort of led to a deep connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from, from, from a young age and a desire to to make sure everything I did was in line with what does Allah say about this? What does the, you know, within whatever I could find out about it as a child, yeah. and my an immediate source of knowledge was my mother. I, mean, I talk a lot about my mother because my father died when I was very young. Um, my father was sick for a very long time and then he eventually died. He, he was sick with cancer for a very long time and he eventually died of um, pneumonia. And I was uh, just turned eight at the time. Um, the youngest, well, my, there were four of us. So my, my sister was five. My brother was nine, a year old, just before he turned nine, actually. He was was only 10 or 11 months between us my mother you know had us uh, quite um, close together um and there was my my third uh, my second system the third sibling who was um probably about seven then um so we had no relatives at all so that actually that was i only reflected on this about a year or two ago how profound it was as uh, an influential experience how, how much it determined a lot of the way i was and the way i thought because Absolutely. of course death is the biggest teacher it's not just a killer of joys but it is the biggest teacher about what is life death teaches you what life is and what living is of course there's that huge uh, difference the op you know opposites always explain each other don't they um but also the pain of losing um your father then understanding when your when your parents when your mother explains to you that um allah loved him and allah took him we all belong to allah and we go back to allah and that was such a profound lesson wow. at very tender age um Absolutely. and so very influential in, in me but I, I found that i didn't have to you know, it, it was enough to know if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said this, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, of course, my journey, I started to read the Qur'an. I started to read it with English at quite a young age, actually, mm. even before I could fully understand all of the, the English words. But I was always a very good reader right from the beginning, so that, that wasn't really a problem for me. So I was reading, um, and I, one of the surahs, my mum would teach me to read a lot of Surah Yasin. Um, she had the habit of reading Surah Yasin after Fajr. So uh, I would read it after Fajr. And um, I would read the English eventually, um, quite regularly and of course it's a very deep 
uh, concepts of uh, aqidah, which are embedded throughout the Quran, which yeah. um, the more you read, and this is one of the benefits of in um, that the reminder benefits the believer, and why we're told to recite again and again and again the Quran, because you will never, this is the word of Allah, you will never understand it on one reading, you'll never grasp everything, and there's always something fresh, something new, something more, um, and as human beings with this sort of mind that uh, flits, doesn't it, flits, uh, we, we grasp something different by the mercy of Allah every time we read it, something more and something we didn't realize from before. So, um, you know, I would I would read Surah Yasin and, and, and grasp these sort of basic uh, points of uh, Aqidah. Um, and, you know, that's sort of where I, I started from. So I, it wasn't for me, there was never a debate. There was not really a pull. So so you grew up in Leighton. Mm -hmm. When when did you? I don't know about you, but f like, because I'm thinking we've got kind of similar, of, of course, subhanAllah, I'm just thinking about your mom, because <laughs> I know my mom found it hard bringing up kids here, not knowing the language mm. with a husband, right? Mm. You know, mm. I just can't imagine, you know, how it was for your mom. Mm. Uh, but I'm just thinking now, okay, so when did you, so you, you knew Islam, you knew Allah from the beginning, you know, mm. it seems, and you, you were aware of that. When did Dawa come into your life? Like, was it something in primary school? It's reading the Quran. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, let there arise from your band that will uh, encourage what is right and prohibit what is wrong. These are injunctions, they're instructions. And even mm. in the English, they're very, very clear. Of course, it was the English for me um, for, for, for many years. Um, and so it was the Quran primarily. Um, and yes, I would try to read a hadith and... Um, my mother tried to teach us, um, I mean, there were so many different things. She was teaching us. Um, when we started secondary school, um, we had uh, one of those blessed schools, actually, even though it was a terrible school, <laughs> a really bad school. But um, What kind of school was it, girls' school? It was a girls' school. At that time, you had these middle schools, Key Stage 3 schools, where they weren't called Key Stage 3. Just And, and just, I think, a year after I left, they, they shut those down, and then they created these all-throughs from 11 to 16. But at that time, you had this sort of 11 to 14, okay. year 7, 8, 9, they would now call. Mm -hmm. We used to call them 1, 2, and 3 then. Um, and so I went to one of these, um, and it was absolutely terrible <laughs> Because you know they they really had a behaviour problem. It was really bad. Um, I think their teacher was watching this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time ago now. Um, but alhamdulillah, big blessing for us is that we had these Islamic studies morning classes. You came in half an hour, an hour early to school, one day a week, and there would be it was the Muslim Education Trust. May Allah bless our earliest generations who set these things up for yeah. us. May Allah mm. reward them. They strove for the sake of Allah, and they gave us messages and planted seeds that you know it's we are sadqa jariya for them too. So subhanallah. Allah, they would send a teacher. Now she was, mashallah, a wonderful woman, Mrs. Sheikh, Mrs. Gosha Sheikh, well known in the Muslim community down in East London, probably further afield. Um, she'd come every week and her passion for the deen was really evident, really evident. And she would encourage anybody who had um, a liking for the deen. Um, and, uh, you know, I was very outspoken from a very young age, actually. One of those who always had a hand up in class. I was outspoken in that class as well. I'd never be chosen every year for the end of year speech at the <laughs> annual um, sure. event that they'd hold at this uh, Muslim Educational uh, Trust uh, function, they'd call it every year. And I always give a little speech. <laughs> I got my wow. speech skills from. Um, and I'd always get, well, normally I'd get top marks in the end of year exam for Islamic studies. Um, so is this like a Saturday school? No, it was during the weekdays. Alhamdulillah. Oh. Yeah, one day a week um, before school started, um, we do this this class 
Um, what kind of things were... So, but, so they had a book. The Muslim Educational Trust published a book. It was I vaguely really remember the Muslim Education yeah. Trust uh, logo. Yeah. yeah. May Allah reward them. Mashallah, Mashallah. Yeah. What they did at that, you know, it was such an inspired idea to send out these teachers. So it was by, um, you, you went there voluntarily if you wanted. If you didn't want, there were many girls who didn't go. There was a number who did. And obviously there were more at year seven and then they'd drop off um, as, as time would go by. But I, I always went to these. And in fact, when I joined my secondary school, I started a class there, which very few children came, very few girls came to in my in my, in my second, uh, sorry, secondary meaning the one after this secondary um, mm. at 14. Um, uh, but um, may Allah reward and bless her. Um, you know, she did a lot. She went to a lot of schools and she always had a passion for the deen and she was always encouraging, giving advice. And may Allah bless her and reward her. She worked well with that school. Um, and then obviously at home, um, my mother tried to teach me Urdu, tried to teach all of us. And mm. I really tried to learn Urdu. Um, she'd taken us to Pakistan in the first time in my uh, sort of years of awareness of what was going on. I, I was about 10. Yeah, I was 10 going on 11, I think. We went at the end uh, in my year six, what they now call year six, uh, last year of primary. And um, of course, we didn't couldn't speak a word um, out there and then picked up bits of Punjabi because the family predominantly spoke Punjabi when they were, you know, and then others spoke Urdu. And so, mm. you know, this mishmash that we, everybody would keep pointing out to us that we learnt and then and came back with. So then she appointed, first she tried it herself and then she appointed a, somebody to come home and teach us. And so I sort of tried to learn uh, Urdu and then my mother had some interesting books. Uh, and one I, I really remember is Marne Ke Baad Kya Hoga, wow. What Happens After Death. <laughs> I wanted to read that book. Mm. So I picked this book up and tried to read this book. So that's another way that I learned the right. and, and, and improved my Urdu. Mm. <laughs> I had to do it to understand this book. Um, and I would read it to my <clears> mum. And, um, you know, there were, and it was quite a good book. It had, you know, authentic hadith about uh, how the soul's journey after death and so on. And that was really fascinating uh, at that age. And obviously by that time, I think that was some five years. No, how many years after? Oh, no, I was probably 12. 12 was I 12 11 um so you know that filled in the blanks about the soul's journey and so on and for me it was fundamental everybody should know this why isn't everybody wanting to <laughs> to you know so there were there were lots of ways through which and then um at my um the next school I went to I met a wonderful girl called Sabra and if you're listening Sabra <laughs> I hope you're really well sorry for losing touch she's a really wonderful very different personality to me I was the loud extrovert outspoken one she was the quiet calm reserved sensible one mashallah and um we we went through secondary together and um her father was involved and uh, in um, and her family whole family in um dawa work and um mm. Masha'Allah, you know, you sort of had a connection there as well. And there was another organisation that um, I got involved with through them and uh, went to some circles, delivered some circles, started some circles, used to get local girls to come every week to my to my, my house, my mum's house. Um, and primarily we do Qur'an tafsir, to be honest with you. We'd, we'd read the Qur'an from starting from Surah Al-Baqarah and talk about the meanings and so on. Um, and I would every week trying to get people to come to this this circle on Sunday mornings mm. we used to do it. Um, what, what was the reason behind that? Was that was that the stage where this kind of divine injunction of promote the good and forbid the evil is that when it started to manifest itself in you doing? No, that was from a younger age. Circles. Oh my goodness! You know the age that <laughs> I just remember how terrible I was in primary school. You know people get that that hollow stage where they're trying to 
um, push the religion down their family members' mouths, yeah. uh, really uh, in, in an in aggressive, <laughs> horrible way that really pushes everyone away. As a ten-year-old, I was I was doing that as a, a young <laughs> child. Yeah, within my whatever power I had. Um, Whenever they would listen. Well, I, at school, <laughs> it was like there were two other girls in my class who sort of said they were Muslims, so it was sort of trying to push it on them. And Muslims must do this, and I'm sure we've all met people like that, you know, children like that in primary who do that. Yeah, um, and then that. in secondary, <laughs> in secondary, it was. Um, actually, I, I didn't know that hijab um, hijab was fun. So, for example, and I was uh, how old was I? I watched a program one day. It was about Muslim women in Egypt putting the hijab back on, and that's what told me that once upon a time, women in Muslim countries used to wear niqabs and burqas and what have you, and then they took them off through this period of at the time I didn't realize the colonization and, and what have you and, and the colonizing of the Muslim mind or the Muslim spirit or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and um, and then in the how old was I? It's probably early 80s. It's probably, I was 12 or 13, 13, 13 when I watched this. And so um, they were, you know, they were interviewing these, these women who put the niqab and put the hijab back on. And um, that was what taught me a lot about the world, but also that hijab is fard. So I finished watching the program. I shouted up the stairs to my mum, mum. I'm going to start wearing the hijab. I think at the time I called it a scarf or a tubatta or something. Mm. I'm going to start wearing that from now on. Or and I said, okay. <laughs> I yeah. said, okay. And from that day forward, I, I, there was this purple tubatta, I remember. <laughs> that was the only thing I had. But I remember I wrapped it around my head and I would go to school every day. Then I had another battle at school having to explain this. I didn't go and explain it to, and it wasn't part of the uniform, this purple tubatta on top of a navy uh, uniform. I had to go and um, explain um, why and how I should be allowed to do it and, and and so on. And I went first to the deputy and then went to the head and I remember, I think the head asked me, why didn't you come to me first? <laughs> why did you go to the deputy first? Um, uh, and that was an interesting thing that carried on in the school I went to beyond because I had to have, an, we had to write a letter to the Board of Governors to be allowed to be able to wear hijab as a part of a uniform in school. Wow. Um, and I remember feeling that we'd been uh, double-crossed and hoodwinked because it never went. The, the head teacher ended up making a deal before the, the Board of Governor meeting and allowed us to wear, and it was Sabra and me, you see, to bring Sabra along, Sabra and me. We went there and um, so we, she said, yes, okay, you, you two can wear it. But we didn't, we thought that would be a blanket rule for everyone in the school. But I remember thinking at the time, you know, we should have gone to the Board of Governors <laughs> and they should have made a rule. Because then my younger sister had a problem at the school later on when I'd left. It's so important that somebody does takes that first step don't you think? Because um, <clears throat> I remember when I was in secondary school, I was the only girl wearing hijab at the beginning anyway. And then obviously people see you and they think, yeah. oh, I could do that. You know, yeah. it, it is and that's okay. What I, that's what I observed. And then step by yeah. step things change. And, yeah. and it was it was locality wide. It right. was locality wide because I, I started, and perhaps it was, you know, the thing about when you buy a car, you start to notice them on the road. Yeah. You never saw them. It could be that. But I felt, oh, everybody started wearing hijab around me. Be all because of me. <laughs> but I remember walking into a secondary school in Barnet because in Barnet there was like, forget about hijabis there were hardly anyone any non-white yeah. people you know yeah. it was like yeah. very mm. like you could know you noticed when there were black people in the class for example right mm. um but just 10 or 20 years later mm. going into secondary school i remember like for my sons mm. looking for secondary schools mm. I, I saw like walked in and in one of the schools in Barnet, there was a massive image of a girl in hijab doing yeah. science, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I started tearing up because mm. I remember what a big deal it was that we mm. like sought permission mm. and, mm. you know, wore hijab and then mm. 
you had questioned about it, you were made fun about it, mm. all, all that kind of stuff that we went mm. through. You know, I, I went through all of that stuff, um, although my, my area was different from the area you grew up in, mm. but I was still the stranger amongst everybody. Mm. And I was not, not apologetic and I wasn't yeah. shy and I was outspoken and I didn't care what anybody was going to say or think. Of course things hurt, but I nothing no lasting memories. I can't really remember mm. actually anything. And I and I was quite extrovert and I, I mean, thank God I wore hijab because God knows what I would have done. <laughs> if I, hadn't. I remember I walking into that. a library when I was fourteen, pretending I was French. So this is you know, a schoolgirl wearing her uniform <laughs> and a hijab with her other friends Why? walking behind her speaking Why with the French that? accent to oh, the librarian. Um just Prank. I was, was that your I'm version just of a feeling in the mood for it that day. See now, because I do the same thing at home all the time. I do it with Arabic. I do it with French. I do it with oh, Urdu. Yeah. I do it with yeah. Russian. I do everything. Yeah, it's better than me. And she, and, she, and she always says, "What? Well, I mean, what's the? Why don't you just learn the language?" So now I can use the same argument. Remember when you went into the library speaking French? So is that just like an indication of your personality? You just. You yeah. just did that for fun. Personalities cause... change over time. Yeah. Yeah. Personalities do change over time. And thank Allah. What is it that saying about Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Ali, who said, uh, if a man uh, is, the same... uh, you know, 20 years or 30 years on, is still like he was when he was 20, or has the same opinions and ideas, and he's learnt nothing and grown up. You know, we do. We have personalities change as well as we mm. grow older. We, we should become more mature. We should become nearer to Allah. We should become more balanced and calmer. And less prone to erratic outbursts, which I think I am less prone now to. Um, Subhanallah, but it also shows you the importance of those local circles. Because, mm. you know, in, in the age of social media, mm. it's very easy to kind of get yeah. disconnected from a, from real yeah. people in your real yeah. locality. Mm. Uh, but I think those circles are just mm. essential. Like, yeah. Even my sons just go to a local circle set up by some brothers. Mm. And I can just see that kind of feeling of you know like belonging because mm. I, I was i was listening to this psychologist and he was saying hey, boys especially uh when they get to teenage they have a gang and it's not about whether they will have a gang or not they will have a gang it's mm. just that what kind what of gang, gang is that going to be yeah. right yeah. um and i just it just goes to show that um those people who do local efforts mm. i mean it's just so valuable what they do mm. um yeah but it does take what they say a village to raise a child absolutely. it's not just the parents it isn't just the mum and it isn't you know well, the school it's, it's, is a village right yeah 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 but it does start at home yeah it Hence does the same definitely. family is built in the home yeah yeah and, yeah, and in, but and, absolutely no I, I completely uh i i think the family is too small <laughs> and actually go, going back onto that actually when you, when you say go thinking you know about some of the things you wanted to talk about yeah. and um you know uh, you know there's lots of arguments against muslim schools and there's right. just within the muslim community i remember a survey done 2005 i think by the ihrc yeah. mm -hmm. and they found that i think 47 percent of muslims interviewed over a thousand muslims were interviewed or, or surveyed um and 47 percent didn't want a muslim school for their child they wanted the best school whichever one that would muslims. be yeah these right. are muslims so you know and of course of course, we know the onslaught against faith schools generally, and of course, yeah. Muslim schools at the. At the but don't don't those people have a point? Like the the point that we're segregating. Because well, it goes before, back to what you were saying about the yeah. village to raise a child, and but, about making the village, yeah. making that <clears throat> sense of normality for the child. Um, mm. You know. This whole thing about the tender ages of children when their brains are developing, the nuance are developing, their sense of identity and self is developing, how should that be done? 
Schools in Finland, for example, a very well-known case of yeah, Finland, yeah. we often say it, they don't start until they're seven. And it's not just Finland, a few other countries. They don't start school. Until, they don't start yeah. school until seven. Yeah. And by the time they're 15, they have outperformed children in Britain in maths and science, the PISA tests uh, that they do at 15. Um, so, you know, the fact is, in Britain, we have this uh, tradition of starting children very early. Mm-hmm. Everything that we do about schooling is very intense and, and, and a bit OTT. Uh, I, I personally feel it's overly regulated, over, overly scrutinised. There's there's lots of good reasons for regulation scrutiny. Of course we should have yeah. it. But it is very intensely um, regulated, very intensely right scrutinised. from the beginning. Um, and, you know, everything mm-hmm. about schooling, you know, even the fact that you're in at five and, you know, there are all these rules. And, and, and sometimes for families, I think it feels like school is such a stressful a part of their family life because it forces them into a mould that they often can't fit because of illness and family problems. And mm-hmm. I completely see why we've got regulation the way we are. For example, uh, attendance. You know, when children aren't at school, all the research shows that um, their grades that will get GCC will be dependent. There's, well, all I know is best about that, but, you know, there is a, a correlation between um, their attendance and, and, you know, it's a consistent thing they found that, you know, they will they can actually talk about um, which grade they can, you, 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 you possibly, you can predict at that point that they might have dependent on their, on, on their attendance at school. Um, and that goes all the way into primary. So we know it does affect children, even anecdotally, you know, when mm. children go away for a period and they're back at school, how that's affected them, how they're on the wrong foot, how they've missed the previous lesson, how they, you've got to do all of this to try to bring them up to speed and obviously that multiplies the longer the absence was. Um, however, you know, when you've got families who do have families uh, abroad and have got sick parents that you're saying to them, oh, you know what, go you in some holiday time. and yeah. the father can't get the you know, break from and so on and then you're only permitted to give them about 10 days. And it all becomes so difficult, so difficult. Um, so the, I don't know, there has to be a balance somewhere. One day we'll get there, inshallah, but even in Britain, to a model of education and schooling that is uh, a lot more child, family, human friendly, um, and actually staff friendly and workload friendly and so on. Uh, perhaps we'll get there. I mean, schools are doing phenomenal amounts of, of work um, and actually doing, you know, primary schools have come on so far since I was at primary school myself when I was a child in, in, in the 70s. Um, so there's great work that's being done in schools up and down the country um, but you know particularly for children mm. if we think again about the development of their identity and who they mm. are and um, you know what they want in life their concept of life the bigger picture all of those things um, if you have a school which mirrors the values of home <clears throat> which gives them the same um, um paradigm and um, landscape of uh, uh, and allows them also to be themselves to not feel uh, different and and have to keep explaining away their religious beliefs or their culture or their color of their skin and so on and so forth all these sorts of things although predominantly Muslim schools should have all colors under the sun um, you know however if the child is always feeling different they have to apologize imagine what that does to the psychology of a child there's there's two ends to that you know the child can either you know suffer from it or the child can can thrive in that but you know what is better overall for the human psyche for a child um, I like the work done by people like Sue Palmer and her toxic childhood um, books and so yeah. on. Um, and this idea that, you know, bringing up children is a process that 
uh, is determined by the biological and psychological needs of the growing child and it has a certain rate at which that should develop um, and today's fast-paced society in the way that we have society we try to force the human being into a mold which is not human which right. doesn't really uh, suit the temperament of the human being the engineered consumer yeah, the, yeah, to be honest with you, yeah. yeah so so I, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm... Because obviously I'm pro-Muslim schools, you know, mm. I've, mm. I sent my children to Muslim schools, but mm. there is something that I sometimes worry about, mm. and I'll share that with you, and you tell me what you think. Mm. And you can tell me as well, Hudayfa, because you've, I think you've been through Muslim schools mainly yes. all your life, yes. right? Yeah. Until A-levels. Until, until A-levels, yeah. Right, so that's similar to my, my children, I guess. Um, I worry sometimes... Like, it felt very natural to put them into a Muslim school at primary age. Mm -hmm. It just felt like they're young, they need to just be around. Yeah. Uh, they need to have messages at school reinforce mm -hmm. what's being taught at home, mm -hmm. right? But also, I wanted them to get into good habits, mm -hmm. right? Like, habits of um, the yeah. prayer, yeah. right? Yeah. And those kind of things. That was very important. Uh, actually, that's in a way more important in secondary school. But then at some point during secondary school, I did start worrying and I still worry because um, my sons have just left secondary school, one of them, and one of them is about to. So I haven't really experienced beyond that. Um, I did start to worry that, OK, okay like you're talking about your upbringing and I, I was quite extrovert as well. I, th I think I thrived in that environment and it made me more passionate about Islam. Yeah. It made me yeah. more inquisitive about Islam and more into da'wah and... But wasn't that because we were challenged and because we were different? But again, it's, it was our particular temperament, psyche mm. and so on. But would we have thrived even more It'd be in a Muslim school? I mean... <laughs> I don't know, because sometimes when you're in your comfort zone... Because what I yeah. see in with, yeah. with, with, with yeah. in a Muslim or Muslim yeah. environment, yeah. because you, are never, yeah. you never face any adversity, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. You, you hardly ever fa you know, makes face any beings. adversity. Yeah. It's kind of, without mm. blowing my own trumpet, a reference to the point I made earlier mm -hmm. about where you had... Um, a people migrate from one country with a set of values and a set of cultural norms and bring them to another in another place i.e in this scenario being the uh being you know england in or the west, the, yeah. the west um and there's such an evident and big clash it then forces individuals to find some way of count either counteracting you've got to make sense of it don't you making and you've sense got to make your decisions of where do you fit into that picture counteract counteracting that clash essentially finding a way to fit in while at the same time holding on to those values that you know your parents you know, treat as, you know, law, I mean, not, not to that extent, but um, something that, you know, they've obviously seen as quite significant, given that that's how they were brought up. Yeah, but um, it's deeper. Iman is deeper than that, though, I have to say. If you, if you were then, as a child, if you have Iman, <clears throat> what you're motivated by is your faith in Allah and your yeah. desire to obey him and worship him. I mean, probably, I mean, probably speaking about those individuals <coughs> who didn't come from a family where Iman was, you know, quite present in the house. And it's something that they've had to find themselves, you know, through their own spiritual journey once they've grown up and, you know, gone through schooling and they've gone into their 20 day university and they've engaged with other, you know, people in their Islamic society or, you know, a person giving da'wah in the street. But I think those individuals, so the ones who don't have Iman in the house, I think that culture clash or that difference between this way of living and another way of living kind of leads to, you know, asking questions it leads to thought it leads to um imagination or essentially more deeper questions more than just you know um, what do i want to be in the future but it kind of digs at the human psyche and the human's purpose yeah and i think you know children who've been in muslim schools 
are thirsty to get out into the real world. Yeah. And they're thirsty Actually, that's to get what out. we should ask Vapor. You know, I've got you in front of me. I should ask you, yeah. like, what was it like when you first went to sixth form? So this is the first time I'm assuming you were in a predominantly non-Muslim environment. Yeah. What were the... And having been at a boys' school for yeah. five years. Because well. I also went to, right. to, a, to so a boys' school. Yeah. Girls as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, be honest. <laughs> and, in front uh, of your mother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think... What were the positives and the negatives? Be honest about both. I think definitely the positives of going through... Um, Excuse me. Going through a Muslim primary school and a Muslim secondary school. First, the obvious one is that you're surrounded by individuals like you in the sense that they've got sim- they've got the same beliefs, um, same practices. Um, they're all essentially yearning for the same goal. You know, whether that be a particular uh, grade in, in study or um, a higher spiritual achievement, mm-hmm. um, and it allows you to, you know, build and communicate with individuals in that setting. So the one thing I, I, you know, which might, you know, pertain to your discussion about pro or anti, you know, faith schools is that for certain individuals who might not be extroverted, because again, I'm, I'm very much like my mother. I'm just a, <laughs> I'm, I'm a carbon copy. Um, yeah. So I'm very extroverted. Um, I talk out again. I'm the one that asks the questions all the time. I have the discussion You know, I put my hand, I put my name in the hat. And so if I, you know, giving my own perspective, not to say that it's, you know, unique, but you do have individuals who aren't quite as extroverted. And so when they're put in a particular setting, um, which is controlled, it might dwarf uh, another aspect of their personality or their individualism. For example, their ability, once they go into a mixed environment, to now converse with non-Muslims and um, understand what their beliefs are, why they might believe in Christianity or Judaism, or why they might not be Muslim, or why they might be an atheist. Um, So where it might you know, be detrimental or, you know, you know, in whatever way it might be detrimental. Um, You'll have an impact on their iman. Okay, yeah, but what about you? I'm asking about okay, you. Okay, well, well, I mean, personally... Again, what was it like? Okay, first day at school. So right? f- first, first day uh, in that out of your comfort zone in a way, right? Or that environment that you've been used to. Yeah. There must have been things that, no matter how extrovert you are, Yeah. you were nervous about or that you... The obvious one is, okay, from my experience, going from a boys' a boys school, is um, all of a sudden coming out into um, an area mm-hmm. where there is no regulation on the communication and the contact between a man and a woman. Right. So that's the obvious one. That's the big one. Right. Um, and ultimately, you know, when you go from interacting with just boys, the, I'm not, I wouldn't say the, the stereotypical viewers, but the general idea might be that once you now go you know to converse with a woman or a female you might be thinking you know you might be a bit dwarfed by the situation you might feel a bit intimidated or you might feel you know not confident enough um but again because i take from my mother and i'm quite extroverted i don't think that affected me so much as it may have affected another individual but i think what it doesn't help with is you're never awkward in other words yeah but (laughs) but i don't think it helps in tempering any situation whereby you might nevertheless feel uh, intimidated by a particular interaction given a particular sensitive topic has arisen in conversation. So, so far, you haven't come against any situation where you thought to yourself, ah, if I'd had more experience, you know, if I'd gone to a non-Muslim school, or if I'd had more experience, because it's not just about the Muslim, non-Muslim aspect, right? Yeah, yeah. There's also the fact that, by and large, Muslim schools are young, right? Mm. They haven't had the years and years of investment and years and years of experience, right? So obviously, like, 
sometimes. Um, no, they, I, mean, I think it's a stereotype and assumption because it's got to do with the, with the staff. It's got to do with right, their, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the degree of experience they have, mm. with right. the degree of subject knowledge, pedagogical knowledge, with the degree of social skills uh, and communication skills that they mm -hmm. have yeah. and what the national curriculum and um, the new Ofsted framework for inspection of schools calls cultural capital, which is a controversial, uh, as, I, as I know many Muslims know now, a controversial concept, um, actually academically. Um, however, I think we all what we all relate to is the idea that... Um, and and it, it happens to children, whether they go to a Muslim school or to right. any sort of school, depends on the circles you mix in right. and on the curriculum that you receive and that you're forced to think about, whether you will learn the cultural cues and the cultural uh, capital and background of the country that you're in, that's your country, um, right. whether you always see yourself as an outsider on the fringes looking in at and never participating, being a part of. Um, and a lot of it has also got to do with um, communication skills in English. Um, yes, exactly. We are largely, the Muslim community in this country is, is an EAL community. Right. <clears throat> even myself. English as a... Additional language. Additional language, yeah. Even myself, because you don't have that uh, background of richness um, throughout your family of conversing and thinking and speaking in, in English. As, I mean, of course, you know, it's a handicap that a lot of us have overcome. We're mm. pretty good at it. But even then, I think given, uh, um, you know, the sort of background that many people have had the richness of and of course the more educated the, the family dynamic that the, 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 the child is, is being raised in the better the level of vocabulary and, and oracy capabilities as we call them now um, all of those things affect children so you know I've I've interviewed hundreds of people for positions in, in school, school over the years um, and I've always been struck by how poor our English skills are as a community so how hungry. really poor and, and, and how often we can't really sometimes it can be Nerves, undoubtedly, but even that's no, part mostly, of oral skills. Mostly is bad grammar. <laughs> bad grammar, and also and in, inability to be able to yeah, <laughs> inability to be able to have an opinion, voice an opinion, express mm. a view, go beyond a few words, um, have a variety of vocabulary. Right. Our vocabulary is really poor as a Muslim community, actually. And I, I, you know, I'm always struck by comments made about the vocabulary I choose. Um, in People shouldn't be making, they shouldn't be struck by, oh, she said another long word. They, they shouldn't be <laughs> yeah, struck by that's, that. That's yeah, it's really because actually we should be using them. So what's yeah. happened? Well, you mean people have. So it, it's a problem within any immigrant population. They're struck by it. It's a strange thing to, to use, you know, words that aren't normally used in conversation and it shouldn't be we should be yeah. using well, it should be a part of the normal use, conversation yeah, that's the thing <laughs> that's, that's basically what, what, that's what middle class or middle class <laughs> white people what, they're just words of expression at the end of the day because they're I, english I, I, exactly <laughs> it's just speaking well, english. It's, like, it's more like, than that I, you see because uh, you know we're, we're currently well. yeah, yeah. We're, what we're <laughs> currently doing in the school is we're developing yeah. our children's oracy quite mm. deliberately and there was a lot of work done by the university of cambridge in developing a scheme uh, a framework of skills for oracy and they, they de developed it deliberately for schools um, because there was work done by uh, researchers and I can think of Hart and Risley, Hart and Risley I think, um, uh, who were American in the States. They did um, a research study which and it was a huge research study which demonstrated that dependent on the child's background is um, how many words they'll hear over the first three years of their life and there's a right. massive gap and that gap starts to emerge a few months after birth. 
um, really? because oh. what they're actually yeah. being exposed to in the home um, by their parents, depending on their, their parents' level of education. Um, they divide them into three categories. They divide them into what we would call benefits. Over there, they call it welfare, I think. Um, and then working, they call it working class. We'd call working parents. And then uh, thirdly, they had the, the professional backgrounds. So people who are middle class, presumably, mm-hmm. we'd call it here. Um, and there's a massive gap, massive gap, you know, uh, of, of the number of words a child has actually been exposed to by the age of three. And, and it's a growing gap from, you know, a few months wow. of, of age. Um, and so on the back of that, you know, University of Cambridge produced this uh, framework of skills for oracy. Um, and there's a fantastic school called School 21 in, in Stratford, East London, that then took that work with University of Cambridge and developed a brilliant scheme for their school. Um, and we've sort of taken a bit of all of that and we've tried to bring that into our school and start to develop our children's. We started off with vocabulary, we started, then moved on to talk. The idea is that the children should get the vocabulary and the oracy skills, the speaking skills, including facial expression and confidence, um, that will enable them to... You see, why? Why? Let's let's go back to the brain's development. Um, When the brain is developing... The brain is developing its ability to understand the world and neurons are being connected. The child is thinking. Now, right. language is not just language to express with another person, but it's also the language of thinking. Right. Um, and um, when you have more language, you can think more. You can come up with more original ideas or different ideas, more questions. Um, it is a tool by which you can learn about the world and excel. Um, and, um, you know, what, what you are exposed to in the home would therefore either limit or liberate that. Um, and, you know, um, what I often say to parents in my school, for example, is is take um, your children out on trips and talk with them and talk yeah. about the experience. Give them new experiences. Give them new vocabulary and talk about it. Allow children's brains and thinking to develop so that they're able to use language to give expression to new thoughts and ideas right. and views yeah. and opinions and so on. Um, and... So we're doing that quite deliberately now in our school. It's it's a work in progress. We're nowhere near the finished article, nowhere near like something that like School 21 is doing amazing work. We, we've started that, but we really value it. And, and that's uh, a common problem in the Muslim community because it's largely derived from immigrant communities where English is an additional language. Right. So they're impoverished in their thinking skills, um, all depending. You know, if you've got a child who's grown up with really rich uh, mother tongue in the home, um, that child will develop their thinking skills in that language. Great. Let them do that. I know it's a challenge when they first mm. go into school, but that they can then develop their English. They will inevitably. They will, yeah. And they will build their English skills. But because they've developed their thinking skills, yes. it's, it's a translation until yeah. they're thinking in English, which inevitably happens mm-hmm. once they're going, going to school. Well, that's what happened with us, really, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I can't remember what happened with me too long ago. I don't now. think I knew English I when I was a kid, and then yeah, I don't as think soon we... as I started school, uh, yeah. I was the first person to read. I remember class being... because I'd been exposed to Urdu and Quran reading yeah. before school. And... Yeah, I can't remember. It's too long ago for me. I have no idea. What I can't remember. All I do remember, one of my earlier memories, is um, <clears throat> uh, being in a in a special class where you're taken out. You know, the intervention classes <laughs> they did used to have in our primary school at the time, and how very quickly they had to send me away because it was all just too easy for me, right. and I had to go. But um, perhaps perhaps I did start with um, Yale. I just can't remember that time of my life. <laughs> well, you remind me of the importance of leadership because mm-hmm. I've really noticed, uh, like even in some of the schools that I've um, had experience with, uh, when there was, for example, a change in head teacher, and that head teacher was really good. You know, I, I noticed, I don't think everyone noticed this, but for me, I noticed the teacher standing taller, you know, <laughs> I noticed just a change in the whole attitude. So mm-hmm. do you think it really goes goes back to leadership as well? We need to, to have those leaders in those schools because 
it's I mean it's all very well having uh you know thinking that you've got a good team of uh, teachers, right? Can you but, hold that foot point for yeah. me? I just want to go back a little bit, rewind mm -hmm. a little bit, back to the thing about Muslim schools. We have got bad rap and bad press, which yeah. doesn't match with the stats. Because if you look at the GCC results <laughs> and the key yeah. results of, of Muslim schools, they are above national average. Just that's faith schools two in days general, ago. Though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it? but even yeah. more so for Muslim schools. Really? Well, right. sorry, faith schools in general, but definitely I think more so for Muslim schools actually. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying there aren't bad Muslim schools out there. There are, and I'm not saying that parents haven't got a big part to play in the success of Muslim. Schools. They do. Mm. Um, but uh, there are a lot of factors that go into that success. But surely it's also what the Muslim schools are doing and the fact that they've given this space which um, mirrors the home values, mirrors the value of education, mirrors the fact that it doesn't get the child to apologise for being there, but um, uh, caters for that child and allows that child to express every part of their humanity, every part of their of their self and that the child can flourish. Um, just a few days ago, um, the three top performing secondary schools in this country were identified as Muslim schools. Dohedal schools, well, they're now called star schools. Um, uh, and Dohedal is uh, an academy. Um, uh, it started off in Blackburn and their flagship school, um, now called Eden Girls School in, in Blackburn, uh, previously called Dohedal Girls, uh, is number one. And it's been there for a while now, a number of years, mashallah. But three, first three positions are all Dohedal schools. Um, and um, they are Muslim schools. They've got a particular model in the way they do things, but they certainly have the Muslim ethos and they certainly cater for, for all of that. Um, in, in what way were they judged to be the best? Uh, there were a number of different indicators, one being GCC results, Progress 8 schools and so on, and and so on um, but there were other things uh, it escaped my mind at the moment there were a few other things um, uptake at sixth form and so on there were a few other things a few other indicators um, so we've got a large number of very successful Muslim schools and they're not a rarity if you look at the what two or 200 odd Muslim schools around the country a large number of them are doing incredibly well so I must say that very very quickly because mm -hmm. um, it's really important to understand that you know um, often there is such <laughs> you could term as propaganda against yeah. um, uh, uh, faith schools and Muslim schools mm -hmm. that we fail to remember the achievements and right. what they're giving back. The, the children that are coming out of those schools, uh, the, the young people, are upstanding members of the community. Mm -hmm. um, they're going like on to do incredible things. <laughs> and our school's quite young, relatively young. Yeah. Um, our primary is, um, what, 16, 17 years old now? Um, and our oldest children are have just finished university, started the first year of work or gone on to master's and so on. Um, and I think you were in the, the fourth cohort, weren't you? You're 2010. I was, how many classes were above me? I think there was one, three. two. There were three, you were in the fourth. Three, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. so you, you're third year now. So some of them, you know, they're working now, or they're, they're doing other things. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, Muslim schools get a bad press. It's unfair. You know, mm. they should get a good... They're doing incredible work and they work so hard to teach the children to be fantastic Muslim citizens or British right. citizens mm -hmm. as a corollary of being a good Muslim. Um, and that is what we need because, of course... Islam and being a Muslim, you know, largely Islam came to improve the world, not to not to detract from the world, not to mm -hmm. not to uh, uh, you know Separate tell the world off and, and, and punish mm -hmm. the world and, and all doom, gloom and fire. It's about civilization and it's about uh, making a godly civilization, humanity that remembers God and, and worships God. And of course, Islam allows us to be a Muslim minority in in a non-Muslim majority in a plural, diverse country like Britain, which is our country. Um, and those are important messages that are being taught to our children through Muslim 
and schools, mm -hmm. which then make them very well prepared for life in modern Britain, mm -hmm. in plural, diverse modern Britain, as uh, diverse uh, uh, British citizens who are ready to take up their world, to be positive, to to demonstrate all of those fundamental mm -hmm. British values in the in the in their best respect, um, and. Um, you know, we should be proud of what right. these schools are doing. That's something, again, that I, that I think, speaking from personal experience, I've felt and I've experienced myself, is that going out into the, um, the wider world, or the big bad world, as it's termly called, you know, society is very tolerant. Of, not, not just tolerant, but very accepting um, and welcoming. Um, there isn't necessarily too a large extent where it's actually noticeable that individuals um, ridicule you for your particular beliefs as a Muslim um, or individuals, you know, say negative things, you know, out of the, be it on the street or be it, you know, even in, I don't know, some form or the other. Um, so I've personally felt that going from Muslim schools uh, and going from Muslim schools like um, uh, my primary school, which really addressed this issue or, um, or this uh, idea of, fitting in as a you know as an individual who is welcome playing here a role in society playing a role in society yeah. is what i would probably yeah what, what mm. you called it playing a, a role in society role. And, and the fact mm. that you can contribute. contribute in the same way that any other individual can contribute um but i would say it's, it's a larger contribution because you're fueled and motivated not by uh you know worldly gain, worldly gain yeah. but by yeah. pleasing god Right. And, you know, doing good unto your neighbour and, and to everybody else around you. And we're right. trying to inspire our children with yeah. that message. And we do a lot of very deliberate work right from the from the outset. I mean, we do the, it's called the SLP, the School Linking Partnership. It used to be called the Three Faith Forum. It's now called the Faith and Belief Forum, I think. Um, so we have our Year 5s uh, team up with another faith school and they work together across a year. They have a few sessions together and they work together, play together, get to know each other. That's really instrumental. in. Um, and then we also invite schools in. Our Year 5 will hold an Islam Awareness Week exhibition of the whole school sort of put together little right. stalls and things and call in all the primary schools and we'll get different schools, a set of children coming um, across the week to see this exhibition, have a Q&A and meet the children, talk to them. So we do a lot because we understand that, yes, faith schools can be divisive. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Of course, you take any group of people, you you know, you can run the risk of them becoming intolerant and narrow-minded. So right. you have to work to educate them not to be and give them opportunities mm -hmm. of mixing. But at the same time, we cannot throw away, just because we're frightened of our children becoming intolerant, we can't throw Religious away the beliefs. important... Mm -hmm issue of letting their brains develop and themselves develop as, as their identity and who they are and being proud of that and developing all those positive Islamic beliefs and traits and characteristics and so on um, for them to then go out and know on what platform they engage with the rest of the world. Um, and uh, I believe in, in, in the vast majority of cases, you know, we're seeing really positive results yeah. from our students. That's really good to hear. And that's really inspiring as well to hear from Hudayfa, you know, because you've actually lived it you know i'm probably projecting some of my own worries you know just yeah sometimes you know when you are bringing your kids up in a different way to the way you were brought up yeah it's it can be quite disconcerting you know mm. you you can start thinking like you said the whole mm. guilt thing you know like yeah. Am I narrowing their exposure to things? Yeah. I think one thing like we that. need to remember, mm. actually, I think mm. one thing we need to remember is there's no, there's there is a multiple of paths on the Salat al Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There, there isn't like this. You know, sometimes we think everything has to be an uh, uh, exact science. Yeah. When you do things exactly this way, otherwise, <laughs> bring up children isn't. No. And at the end of the day, we are the creation of Allah. We go through so many different experiences in life that all have play a part in formulating our personality and who we yeah. are mm -hmm. um, and you know we can make the best of that we can make the worst of that and and everything else around us all these multiple different factors that are impinging on our develop, developing personalities play a role
role in that. And then yeah. we have a, a, a driving force as individuals to, you know, we get to an age of maturity where we're making conscious decisions and we're choosing which path to take. And, exactly. and what to, yeah. But by the mercy of Allah, again, it's another mercy of his. There are multiple different paths that we can take. Yeah. You don't have to be a head teacher to be a good Muslim. You don't have to be a broadcast journalist to be a, a good Muslim. You can be all of those different things and be a good Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you just have to obey Allah and be sincere and true and do good unto people and fulfill your prayer. You know, and, and all of that is a part of being a good Muslim, doing fantastic things every day, like the unsung Muslim heroes up and down the country. Um, you know, I, I watched that uh, iPlayer on... Um, I play a documentary on the Birmingham Hospital uh, where these amazing the surgeons, surgeons on the edge of life, yeah. I think it was called. Yeah, mm -hmm. amazing. Really and, and, and one of them is such an inspirational character in the very first uh, episode, a Muslim surgeon, neurosurgeon. Uh, what a personality and what humility and what a way with his parents yeah. and the sincerity with which he's looking after his patients. Yeah, that way that he does through his, you know, and, and right. that's what Ilm Feed is all about, celebrating yeah. these unsung heroes. And there should be. I mean, it was that um, uh, piece of research wasn't it? Was it Lancaster University that showed that for every uh, one piece, one good news story of Muslims out there, there's 21 mm. negative stories? In some way, the Muslims have been mentioned in a negative way. Some they, they yeah. examined the words that were yeah. used to refer to Muslims, and they found for every one good word, there's 21 negative. That's, oh, things. that's ultimately what dwarfs the positive impact that Muslims yeah. might have. And it affects us as well, of course. It affects the psychology of Muslims. We become very negative about ourselves, yeah. and our mm. community. And, but and, actually, and then, then you have the whole inferior complex just yeah. by that. Yeah. Then that... Sometimes we perpetuate it as well. Like, yeah, you know, uh, some yeah. of the news, uh, the media that Muslims produce yeah. is also yeah. negative. I mean, I get that. I, get, I can get really negative. Yeah. I can talk about that. What does I often say? I often say we've got these um, oh, maladies. We, we, we have these um, these, uh, these these maladies of the Muslim yeah. community, maladies of mind, maladies of spirit, maladies. Um, uh, you know, and it's right to be introspective and critical yeah. of our community too. But be. if we overdo that uh, in the face of such hostility, really, I mean... <laughs> Is it is it hostility? I don't want, I don't want to judge the intention because sometimes it's all just about numbers making. You know, is every community res, you know referred to in that way? I don't know if that that job has been done. You know, is news more interested in the negative because people read stories that are negative that scare them? You know, mm. is that the fact? Uh, you know, out there and is it about all faiths and all peoples and all groups that that you know uh, negative seems to be mentioned so much more in the media? And is that why actually in Britain and perhaps in the Western world, Allah knows, um, uh, people tend to be in a state of fear all the time you know and, and very risk averse um, because we are so fearful that something else might happen because we've read it in the paper so you know if we news, if we've yeah. read every mm. single day uh, about uh, you know a moped robbery we, we think we're going to be the next victim yeah, of that. Yeah. but actually statistically it's more likely that you might be knocked over by etc uh, yeah. you know uh, by a car than I was just thinking something I wanted to share with you I think you we were talking about Muslim schools and um you know, before I, I took us down the path of talking about the successes of Muslim schools, you were going on to a point... Leadership. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Leadership is really important. Um, of course, of course it is, no doubt. Um, but each of us needs to be a leader of ourselves and our families. And that's the challenge. I think any faith teaches that challenge. And Islam certainly teaches that challenge. Lead yourself. You know, know who you are by knowing that you are the servant of Allah, you're the creation of Allah, knowing your place in this universe and in the scheme of all things. Um, lead your life and then lead your family. You know, the Prophet Sallallahu said each of you is... Um, a shepherd. Yes, each of you mm -hmm. is a shepherd. And and so, you know, the, the, the point is, is that we need to lead our, our lives, ourselves first, and then we need to lead our families. Um, and yes, we need to lead our communities and we need to be the role models for the next generations. We need to be the role models for those who might need a little bit of inspiring, a little bit of um, 
reassurance in a scary world. Um, so yes, schools need good leadership. Undoubtedly, all the research is out there saying schools should be led well and schools mm. can often be um, deemed to be at risk of failure or failed because um, of poor leadership. You know, so, uh, you know, it's one of those areas of mine that I'm really interested in. And I, I've done a lot of training of, of head teachers, actually, um, through the NIDA Trust on, uh, on leadership and mm. uh, being a head teacher of, of a school. And um I'm personally inspired by the example of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You know, he was a leader of his himself, his life. He was a leader of his family. He was a leader of his community. He was a leader of humanity. Um, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's example of what it's like to be an amazing leader that has impact. So, what is leadership at the end of the day? Yeah, is leadership uh, that you say a list of rules and everybody follows? You devise an amazing list of rules, or is it all about inspiring people to want to follow a vision? And it may be right. your vision, but you sell that vision, it becomes everybody's vision, and you inspire people to want to you follow give that. Give them a why. And you very much in any organisation, that's what leadership is doing really, yeah. really well. It's giving them a why, but persuading them that that why is their vision. Right. And and this is an amazing vision uh, of the future. And 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 of course, uh, a really successful leader will have uh, a vision that's that's it's big that's aspiring that's excellent rather than negative um and it's about bringing people on board on that journey um do you think it's also about caring about the little things uh, the reason why i say that is i had a terrific head teacher at primary school we we i actually grew up in hackney the opposite of barnet <laughs> but uh, for my primary years and our head teacher used to come in from outside london you know he's he was very kind of mission driven type yeah. person mr mm -hmm. mines ken mines mm -hmm. i actually made contact with him recently um he's he runs a garden somewhere <laughs> like he's completely <laughs> changed um you know uh, careers um but he was just amazing as a leader he was in the classroom you know in everyone's classroom he he taught us calligraphy he like we were just a bunch of you know i'm just going to be honest you know we were just like poor Asian kids, right, who nobody would really have cared about. Mm. But he actually used to enter us into calligraphy competitions. He, th those of us who had certain skills, he would push us, you know, up and enter us into things and look out for us. And, mm. and I just remember one of the things he, he, one of the qualities he had was he paid attention to detail yeah. and he felt very strongly about certain things, mm. you know. My children in my school have got to have good penmanship. Hmm. And it was like, yeah. he took it personally. He, he, yeah, that's you know? about his vision. Right. His vision. He had mm. a very clear vision and he, he was unequivocal about the things that really mattered. Yeah. And he, which is great, which is great. Um, everybody has a different leadership style and mm. some styles are more successful than others. And, and the best leaders can actually move between leadership styles mm. um, dependent on the sort of epoch, uh, the, the stage of evolution of this school, the needs of their staff, needs of their team, needs of the school. Um, but attention to detail is important. But at the same time, if you become overly uh, obsessed rigid, with detail yeah, yeah, and yeah. too rigid, mm. you need to have that degree of flexibility because mm. you've got to be able to be prepared to change all of the time. Uh, change in order to do what's best for the school, for those children. Um, and so you've got to be able to be dynamic and flexible and adaptable and then have enough of a vision to be able to you, be, be self-aware of yourself and your limitations, but also that of the school, and also be able to evaluate the school at any one stage, what needs to be done. And then you need to have that unequivocal vision for what needs to happen for education and for those children in that school and then move mountains to make that happen, I suppose you you, you call. Um, I think schools are very stressed and stressful places these days. There is just so mm. much that needs to be done. I was going to ask you about that. Um, like, yeah. do you feel that in the current climate, uh, schools have become very self-conscious? Do you feel that 
there are things, decisions that they're making, Muslim schools, that they wouldn't have made um, previously. I don't know. I can't say. I mean, the, the phenomenon of Muslim schools is young, very young, very young. Um, you know, we've got approximately 200 or more in the country today. Of those, some are in the maintained sector, voluntary-aided or academies or free schools, a very small number. The mm-hmm. rest are independent schools. So it's difficult to say, you know, what was it like in the past? What is it like today? I think I like to say to myself that they were all opened with a good intention. But I have to be, you know, and that good intention being that we want something better for our children. We want high standards. We want them to know Allah. We want to have uh, this village that nurtures them and, 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 and raises them. Um, but at the same time, and, and, you know, and obviously we want... Um, you know, high academic standards as well as religious or, or, or emotional development um, and spiritual development standards. But I think at the same time, there may well be schools that opened because they wanted to keep the children safe uh, from perceived fears or perceived danger in other schools. Mm-hmm. And some of those perceived dangers may have been overly, you know, hyped. It may be, you know, keep our girls away. There may be schools like that. Personally, I don't have any experience of them. They may exist. Um, I've got experience of loads of schools that really work really hard and really try very hard. And they are stressed places because they're small. They're usually the, the fees in these independent schools are low, much lower than what you'd get in a maintained school per child right. per head. Um, and they're, you know, staff are accepting lower salaries. Right. And how long can staff do that for before they need to go and feed their families and buy a house and do something for their own? And how do, long do you think that's do a big thing that needs to change? Because oh, yeah. I do, naturally, I yeah. you know, if you're a very high achieving person, mm. you, unless you're very motivated, <laughs> you're going to want to have a higher salary, right? If you can get Well, it. I don't think it's just a higher salary. I think it's it's got to do with you've got responsibilities in the family. Housing yeah, prices, whether needs. rented exactly. or, or, or mortgaged, it's it's extortionate today. Extortionate for anybody living in London or anywhere in Britain at the moment. But you know, definitely in, in, in the cities in London the house prices are huge. And when it comes down to, you know, do I carry on doing what I love doing and uh, you know, helping children to excel and be the best human beings they can be, or do I go away to another school and another job or somewhere else because I need to feed my family and put a roof over their head well sometimes yeah. it's a no-brainer they have to do that and you can completely understand that but then that leads to staff turnover high staff turnover right, rates right. which will affect the standards in the school <coughs> and yeah. as as leadership you're constantly you know retraining and training and training <coughs> and inducting inducting new staff who are right at the beginning of their careers very often and and all of that yeah that that can be something that can hold you back but you can either see it like that or you can overcome it how are we going to solve that well, you see, if, you know, this High is, fees. people who open, yeah, see, this is the problem. If you raise the fees, you close the schools off to a huge number of people, huge sways of the Muslim community. Oh, we need Hudayfa and his generation <laughs> to earn big bucks and invest back into the schools. I think that's, that's what a lot of schools do, right? A lot of the private schools. I think the other thing is, 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 is thinking things in new ways. I yeah. think independent schools. But I mean, the community needs to. Yeah, see the value them. of these schools they do. and invest they do. and there needs to be yeah. oqaf there needs to be some kind of but I think at the same time and... as well we could we, you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the human mind with in an amazing way and they say you know we've only discovered or we only use a certain 2% 10% of our brain at any one time um and when we come together, it's a super brain. You can get a lot of think uh, together. You can also run the problems of groupthink, but you can also get lots of uh, brains coming together to come mm-hmm. up with solutions. And, uh, you know, there are, you just have to take a risk sometimes. Sometimes we can be risk averse. Oh, you've said that word so many times today. <laughs> like we're a bit risk obsessed at the moment. But sometimes we can be frightened to make a change um, because of the consequences that it might entail. But we might need to make a, a big change like, to do things differently. Change? You know the thing they say about if you do things all of the time the same way, you're not going to get any yeah. different results. You need to change. So, for example, if uh, independent schools uh, put some money in 
somehow to having a fundraiser who uh, and and I don't know if this would be a popular idea amongst uh, schools but you have uh, means tested fees so fees for Muslim schools the the more you earn the more you pay Uh, the less you earn if you can you know demonstrate uh, that you qualify for that sort of um, uh, discount or or, or dispensation the the less fees you pay and some people completely free Um, I've got a feeling that independent schools may have to move into that model anyway because of the, the the pressures on the charitable sector and, and and well independent schools largely are registered as charities mm. um and uh, there's a growing uh, fee- feeling that um these schools that are registered as charities need to do more for the public benefit um so it may well be a model that independent schools move towards anyway because this would be of a greater public benefit if they could subsidize or reduce or even uh, uh, um pay for the fees of some of the children in their school and that way um you know, because I have noticed that um, you will have parents who are driving rather expensive cars, who are sending their children to school and paying the same fees as parents who are clearly struggling and putting every penny together to get their children into a Muslim school, and some who have to inevitably leave because they can't afford the fees anymore. So they, there are different models that we could possibly think about, but you're right, one of the models we think about is Al-Qaf and about um, Muslim businessmen feeling uh, um, confident enough to invest in the Muslim sector and mm. to, without feeling that they're going to associate with the toxic brand that could affect their business in a negative way. <laughs> My husband still gets um, magazines from uh, Imperial and letters. I get emails. <laughs> asking him for donations. and yeah. you know. So I just yeah. got that idea from that, that yeah. you know, there is this culture in the UK mm-hmm. at least of alumni yeah yeah and, we did and... start off something um with our alumni um but again you know the, the smaller a school is and the more people are running around with a lot of well, the fewer people you've got with lots of hats doing lots of things um you just get stretched you've got all these wonderful wild ideas but yes we shouldn't we should be can do people and not can't do we should be let's try our camel let's try our best and let's try something different mm. um but again we, you know, it, the people who make the decisions need to perhaps have a think around that. Really, I think. Does that does this funding issue affect VA schools and so schools well, that it, are funded by the just government? Just get a, a massive budget increase by the chancellor. Well, I, I don't know how long that will last for. There, there was something that's was come through, increase, but that was not... after um, funds had decreased in, in, in the maintained sector. Um, funds were decreased for schools. Mm. Um, so that was all part of austerity, the Conservative um, government's, oh, yeah. um, the Tory government's uh, austerity period, which lasted from the point, I think, Cameron came in 2010 up until uh, quite recently when we were told about a year or less than a year ago the that austerity, austerity is over. <laughs> <laughs> At the quite interesting. We should have all, all have asked the question that has the, the deficit been um, sorted then um no it hasn't but um uh, here we are um the maintained sector obviously has received more per head per child than the muslim independent sector um and we as a school we've just entered we've, we've got two schools now we've got our independent school and we've got a maintained voluntary aided uh, oh, okay. school that opened um uh, over a year ago in september 2018 are they different levels well, oh, at the moment, because our voluntary school started with reception year one, our independent school didn't take in a reception year one for that year. It stopped taking though. Well, in fact, it didn't take in a reception, but all the children who were in reception that year applied to the voluntary school to the year one in that class. So that's how our independent went from year two to six last year. And our voluntary school, a maintained school, was reception year one. This year, we've moved up to year two in the voluntary reception through to year two. It's a two-form entry, so two classes per year group. And our independent school, is year three to six uh, and that's one form entry one class per year group um 
can't remember why we started talking about this. We started talking about this because of maintained schools and funding. So it's interesting because for 16, 17 years, we've been in the model of, you know, pulling in our belts in the independent um, because our fees are below what you would get. Um, Our fees, I think, around 3,600 per year. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. We're plugging my school. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Um, so they're about uh, 3,600 per per year uh, per child. But obviously in the maintained sector, you get substantially more than that uh, by the time everything else is added in and you get your daily to school budget um so however because of austerity we've we've entered we've we've joined the maintained sector at a time where they're pulling their belts in in the yeah. you know but let's see when this money comes down and i mean does, has it affected staff turnover has it improved that kind of thing we're too young as the maintained right. school really to make mm. that sort of comment at this point i can say to you that as a very very small school even if you know things hadn't changed and things were generous um we would still found ourselves in an interesting situation because we're not large enough yet for economies of scale to kick in. Um, And it's arguable that even when we're full as a two-form entry, that we'll ever get to a really comfortable position. Um, But of course, it will be better than we ever had in the independent and so on. Our independent will get smaller a year on time, by the way, um, and and it will actually uh, um, phase out. But in the meantime, we're committed to high standards and we run the two schools uh, seamlessly side by side, actually in the same We've got new builds by the mercy of Allah. It's a wonderful new building. Um, Our local authority were very supportive and um, it was a very interesting process, the whole building and design process. Um, So does that mean... Parents apply separately to the independent. And yes, separate. yeah. two oh. separate schools, two different schools, two different admissions processes. And is that because there was just the demand, and so you yeah. carried on with the independent as well? Is that? And we had a commitment to okay. our children. What we didn't want to do, um, and the Elnor Foundation, that's a proprietorial body for the independent school, and um, did the initial application for the voluntary aided school. Um, they made a commitment. We did what we did. None of us wanted to see was that we just suddenly said to parents and children, "Right, you have to leave now." because next year we're opening a new school yeah. and oh, we don't have room for you anymore. You have to go and find somewhere else. So they made a commitment towards those those children and those families that, no, we have a vision for you as individuals <laughs> and as families, and we're going to see that through. Um, and that's what we're doing. And it does mean that the Old North Foundation, um, you know, is putting their trust in Allah and doing a lot of fundraising raising for that to happen because, of course, um, the economies of scale kick the other way for the independent school as it gets smaller. So may Allah reward them. They're, you know, phenomenal fundraisers. And um, they, when they have a vision and idea they stick to it and they deliver by the mercy of Allah by the permission of Allah um, and so you know I'm proud of being a part of an organization that does that yeah when I heard that you were a teacher I was so happy mashallah because I just remember you know your personality and thinking yeah I would love my kids to go to school with with Samira's head Aww, mashallah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you um, I wanted to ask you about RSE hmm. and uh what are the cha- can you explain to like parents who might not know like what are the changes that are coming in um yeah. how do they affect muslim schools are they going to affect muslim schools or and and what about people whose children are in uh state schools and ordinary mm. you know I don't know what to the call changes them. affect yeah. all schools, maintained and mm. independent. They do affect all schools. Um now, however, the changes from my perspective are positive. Because for the first time, they lay down boundaries that were, weren't uh, existent before. And previously, schools had um, laid out their own rules and, and done things their own way. The government went through a process of um, consultation 
with a lot of people before um, putting this statutory guidance together. Now, the statutory guidance isn't yet law. Uh, well, it's law, but it's not yet applicable. It's applicable September 2020, next year. Um, it, the DfE did encourage early adopters, schools, to start to adopt it from September 2019. Um, number of schools and local authorities decided, no, let's take our time to develop this properly and make sure schemes of work are in place that have been well thought out and done so is it is it a curriculum just for people who don't mm. know is it a curriculum or a guideline or mm. there's statutory guidelines that have to be delivered by the time the child finishes at year six for right. example in primary okay. school that's relevant mm. to us there are also statutory guidelines for secondary school um so at the moment uh, obviously i'm more conversant with the primary school end but the document covers both um yep. so they brought in things that weren't compulsory because remember pshe personal social health education wasn't compulsory in primary schools for example um, it was compulsory in independent schools so we had it it wasn't compulsory in primary schools um, it's a non-statutory subject um, so this new RSE guidelines actually have some incredible important things in there about health and well-being um, and those are really good stuff that's in there and in fact even what it's got in there about the relationships education are really important things um, and, and they ha it has been well thought through um, I would say there isn't a reason to panic if a school is acting within the spirit of that guidelines, actually, from my reading of it. And I've read it quite carefully, and we've already consulted with our parents, have presented it to parents. Um, there, there is a need for schools to do what the guidance says. And the guidance says consult with parents, take right. their views That's on board. That's an important thing, isn't and it? And it, it, when you read it as a Muslim parent and as a faith parent, I think of any faith, you it's very reassuring because okay. schools are expected to consult with parents and take on the religious views or the religious background of pupils. Mm. Um, and they're meant to share and possibly can be argued, my reading of it certainly supports the, the, the suggestion that schools should actually consult in developing the planning of these subjects. Right. Um, the DfE is in a position where... You know, it has to show its support of schools and it has to show its support of parents and talk about the spirit of, of the guidelines. And I think it's straddling a difficult position here when people are saying, why isn't the DfE speaking up? There are many parents that like the DfE to stress that part about parental consultation and about the, the, the views of religious uh, uh, backgrounds, the backgrounds of the, of the pupils to be taken into uh, perspective. You have a large proportion of children from particular religion and so on and so forth. Um but um, I think DfE straddles a difficult line. It doesn't want to obviously be seen to be um, taking, uh, um, detracting from its commitment to human rights and to uh, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the rights of equality of the protected characteristics, such as groups as the LGBT groups. Um, and of course, it has a commitment to um, uh, promoting their rights. So, it, it, you know, in, in communicating to schools, people have felt that the DfE has been been slow in making things really clear. Um, I think the guidance speaks for itself and one has to read it and then produce mm. it and discuss uh, with schools what they make of it. Uh, I certainly think that schools can be empowered by that guidance and be given quite clear boundaries. And, and the other thing it doesn't do, the guidance doesn't tell you that you have to teach any part of this at this age. They say by the end, by year six by the end of year six. So where there are there there are a few areas where parents might feel uncomfortable. So for parents from traditionally religious backgrounds, for them, uh, anything that might sound to them as though uh, LGBT uh, views or pro-LGBT views are being promoted um, is, is very worrying. Um, and I think, again, one has to look at the guidance 
and talk to schools because the guidance itself doesn't require schools to be doing that. Um, the guidance wants to ensure that children are receiving an education that makes them good citizens for 21st century Britain and treat other people with respect right. and know and have a knowledge about the different groups in society that are protected under the law and understand that they're protected under the law and one should treat them with respect. And as a, as a faith school, I think any faith school wouldn't have a problem with that at all. So we don't. Mm. And so we, are, we already had a curriculum in which our children were introduced um, uh, to uh, these concepts uh, but in a sensitive way, in a faith-centred way, which is what the guidance supports, actually. Right. Um, we are tweaking our curriculum to add in all the great stuff in that RSC guidance that the, the government's published, the stuff about health and well-being, um, and we're tweaking our curriculum to ensure that it meets um, the spirit and the letter of, of, of the guidance, but we've already got the vast majority in our curriculum. So I don't actually think there's any reason to panic at all for Muslims, the guidance actually protects parents and families. So I think um, the problem, for example, in, with the case in Birmingham, that was quite in the media. See, that was nothing to do with this RSC guidance. This RSC right. guidance actually should solve that problem, in my view, my simplistic view. It was more about... Uh, it's the, about things that were already that being taught was implemented before it? the guidance. No, because the guidance wasn't out at the time this was all happening. Okay. But because the guidance was coming out, it was in a draft form at the time when all of this was happening, people have uh, confused the two things in their minds. So what was going on in Birmingham is that schools were teaching what they wanted to teach about these issues right. to the children. And in particular, the worry was about t promoting... Uh, uh, um, Confusing children about confusing children gender about and, yeah. gender and LGBT issues, yeah. um, about promoting this, um, which was at odds with um, the religious views and faiths of uh, communities that were protesting. Um, now, at that time, this guidance was not law. It's still not law. It, it, sorry, it is law, but it's not applicable yet. It's applicable in September 2020. So schools that were already promoting certain ideas and values, they did so because they felt the value of them. They, they believed in those things. And of course, if you understand the backdrop of society today um, and you understand the Equality Act and so on, you can completely see why schools were doing what they were doing. Um, However, if you've got those schools had large proportions of parents who had a particular religious view, mm -hmm. um, there was a stage there that needed to be done in terms of consultation, which one wonders whether how well that was done, right. um, which led to this situation. I, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know where, why we got where we got uh, over there. But um, surely if people heeded the government's advice to consult, consult. clearly, you know, when you've got any dispute, like, you, you know, you have disputes in workplaces and then the unions have to get involved and they become entrenched and people dig their heels in yeah. any dispute can come you know get to a it stage where it becomes that. very difficult to resolve and I think that that may have happened here um, but if things were done well early on, Earlier on you yeah. could possibly prevent that from happening so if you, if you start to promote um, if you start to teach um, uh, LGBT equality and promote it in such a way that parents feel that the moral values of their children are being affected and they're being confused, then clearly there's a stage of consultation that should be happening to, uh, you know, shape your curriculum that would avoid that happening. Um, and I think that this guidance does that. It, it, certainly it says it very clearly in black and white that that, sh that stage should be happening. And right now in preparation for September 2020, schools should be consulting with parents. And it shouldn't be um, a symbolic exercise it should be a meaningful exercise where parents are really involved in that process and a part of that process so that their views are taken on board um, 
the DfE takes its final line is saying the decisions of schools are final. Of course, the schools have to be. But if they have, to, they have to be the final arbiters. Of course, they have to. Right. Somebody has to. You could have all sorts of different people from different groups come in and say, I want this to, to a school. A school's got to make a judgment and say, this is what its curriculum is going to be. So I completely get that. Um, but if a school is really consulted well and taken on board um, the views of its the families it's serving, mm-hmm. um, then surely it will come to a curriculum that will be supported by that by the parents of that school. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Thank you for clar- clarifying that because, um, you know, sometimes if you're only relying on what's on the news, you can get this kind of impression that something's going to be dictated to all the schools and all of our children are going to come home confused. And, mm. and I, I mean, what, what a... it says in, in, in this guidance that I think it's one or two lines I coloured in yellow to say, right, I need to make sure. Um, and uh, one is about the different families aspects. But again, if you read right. the guidance carefully and it's available for everybody and anybody to see online, if you go to .gov.uk, DfE uh, website, um, dfe.gov.uk, I think it is, or uh, no, education.gov.uk, and you look it up, the relationships and sex education uh, DfE guidance, um, anybody can read it. Um, and um, the wording is such that it's very, very easy to teach that from a faith. In fact, I would say that this guidance really helps faith schools because it allows us for the first time in law by to 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 teach um, a potentially difficult subject from the perspective of its faith whereas previous right. previously that wasn't there so you were left to the whims of of, of other educational experts or, or authorities to come in and tell you how to do it um, and I don't think that was a wise state of affairs this is really tidying things up so it, and it does say it there in black and white that you can teach a faith school can teach from it from the from the viewpoint of its faith perspective but at the same time it does need to teach respect Right. Jazakallah khairan. Thank you for that. If there's, is there anything like really, uh, some anything you're feeling strongly about that you want to share with people or? Mm. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's about. Um, there might be teachers listening. There might be yeah. other head teachers listening. Um, parents, all sorts of people. If there's anything, any kind of last message that you'd like to give. Goodness, I've got so many different last messages. Blending okay. the role of parent and teacher. That's probably a good one. Yeah. To realise or to acknowledge that one isn't just a parent, but one is also a mentor, a teacher, an influencer, uh, an individual who builds the or, or who instills the building blocks from young age, as you have me. Um, um, <laughs> um, he makes me look so good, doesn't he? Yeah. Nobody knows my no, faults. She makes me I've only taken one out. Oh, I've only put one out by four. We all, all parents and families have challenges, and I've had plenty of mine. They all do, and no, you know, no two children are the same in the family, and we shouldn't feel ashamed of our child. I think that's a really important thing. You're, you're absolutely, you know, he's absolutely right. It's really important that parents understand that the, 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 you know, the weight of responsibility on their shoulder. But I think most parents do. Some of them might hide from it because it's so scary. Um, you know, and I think, the, you know, the key thing about families, get healed. Please get healed, mums and dads. Heal yourselves and heal your relationships. Mums um, uh, and dads, heal, heal your relationships. If you can uh, heal your relationships, you're teaching children um, everything they need to know about relationships in their family and in the future. And you're also impinging on the development of their emotional... You're, you're going to give them a, a healthy emotional development if you do that. You'll get it right, but Ethan, you'll get it better. No, there's no such thing as perfect and right. Everybody's got challenging circumstances. You can't control what Allah has dictated for you as a trial from one moment to the next. You can't control 
if somebody's going to pass away and how that might affect you, your family, your children. But you can try and have as much iman as possible and try and have as much sabr as possible, but become healed first. So you are emotionally available to raise your children. And if you're emotionally available to raise your children, your children can develop emotionally well. It's the first building block that iman will be built upon. Spirituality will be... And you, what you were saying earlier on about socialization and about normality and about routines and all, all of those things happen from the earliest stage. This is tarbiyah. Tarbiyah is as much spiritual development as it is physical development and learning to clean your nose and how to use a toilet and how to eat and how to and so on and so forth. All of it is tarbiyah. And um, we can get it a lot better in our homes if we get that emotional and psychological healing and move forward with our families. And for, for teachers and head teachers in Muslim schools, they're unsung heroes. And, and school leaders, they are unsung heroes, they're doing incredibly hard work and incredibly good work and they are trying their best. Um, and I think uh, one thing sometimes, I, I think, you know, when we go back to that comment about how we can judge ourselves and judge the Muslim community too harshly, I think that, that you can see that at times in schools. We have some amazing families and parents in our schools, amazing people. Sometimes we can have on the odd occasion an interaction which you think, mm, would they behave like that with teachers or staff in a maintained school next door would they mm -hmm. have dared speak in that way or do, question mark I, I don't know um you mean sorry you mean like uh muslims treating other muslims badly yeah yeah with the, with the disrespect that you you mm -hmm. wouldn't expect if perhaps you'd been the teacher in the school next door mm -hmm. or you hadn't been brown and muslim yourself <laughs> and mm. perhaps all communities have the same issue of treating themselves treating each other with less respect than they would and allah with that but we, you know we'd need another hour or two to to to, to dissect that. where they come yeah. where that comes from um but you know they should everybody out there working for the sake of allah wherever they are need to remember that what we need to fix is our relationship with allah before even our relationship with each other and our understanding ourselves so we what we need to do is understand what we are doing in life we need to turn sincerely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we need to remember his promise we need to make time for Allah when we're so pressed upon in our time you know we were talking about earlier on about schools being stressed but you know and, and Britain being this place that sends its children to school at five and this you know robotic long working hours and so on um, how do we make our lives more family friendly and how do we make them more God-centric? How do we uh, tone down the, 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 the noise around us uh, and the edutainment uh, around us? And how do we uh, connect more meaningfully with Allah? Um, you know, we've been given the gift of Athkar, the gift of the Quran. The, you know, there's so many gifts, but we, we sometimes fail to make the time for it. And I, I criticise myself as much as I criticise. I mean, it's not a criticism. It's an encouragement. It's an exhortation for all of us to think about when we make those times. And, and then we have to have mercy upon ourselves as you were suggesting earlier on in uh, uh, you know the word insan comes from the root letters nasia which means to forget mm -hmm. our you know and every time i look at that story of adam and uh, 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 salam and iblis and adam's choice now i was looking at that story again this morning ironically enough um and uh, i should say actually um now if our father adam who was a prophet of allah was forgiven if he could make that mistake then surely the mistakes that we make too can be forgiven if we do what Adam did. And the difference mm -hmm. between Adam and Shaitan was that Shaitan was, did not have remorse. Adam had instant remorse. The moment that he did this, 
And as it says in the Quran, he's naked, they became aware of their nakedness. Uh, at the moment that he did this, he made that beautiful dua. Oh Allah, unless you forgive us, have mercy upon us, we'll become of the losers. He immediately had remorse and immediately made tawba, and the tawba was sincere. But he had to taste the consequences of his deed. So he was told in the same word, Ihbitu, Ihbitu, out of here, come out mm -hmm. of here, from here. But the, the same word was said to shaitan, but he will live in the earth for a time. And then he will return. And um, we have to do what Adam did. When we as insan, nasiya, when we forget, when we fall short, when we sin, we make sincere tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't hold on. We don't follow the path of shaitan, which is what he's trying and egging us on to do, of being remorseless and carrying on in our dalala, in our, in our error. But rather, we take the path of Adam and, 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 and our capacity that Allah has given us to be sincere, to repent to him and turn back to him. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, we need to remember that this, this theatre of life that we live in is for a fixed period of time. And our abode in the hereafter is forever. And that we need to have that sabr to see it through. And and very often this nasiya insan, this mm -hmm. forgetful human being, is going to forget that and be, like Allah says in the Quran, uh, and also impatient, niggardly, fretful, uh, forgetful. Um, this is the nature and weak. You know. Also we have these tendencies inside. So therefore forgive ourselves. We have a tendency, and all we need to do is remember the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, كُلُّ بَنِي آدَمْ خَطَّائِينَ وَخَيْرُ الْخَطَّائِينَ التَّوَّبِينَ That all of the children of Adam are sinners or mistakers, and uh, the best of them are those who frequently repent. And as we know um, that uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that Allah is more delighted with repentance of one of us than we would be, we, than we would be delighted if we had um, uh, lost our camel and all of our belongings in the middle of the desert and had given up all hope and lay down to die. And yet we open our eyes and we see our camel above us with all our belongings and we cry out in delirious joy, Oh Allah, you are my servant and I am your Lord. And a word of shirk in our uh, ecstatic joy. But Allah is more delighted with us when we make tawbah than this man. Subhan and this man said a word of shirk. This is what we, we need to understand who Allah is. And that's what I'm saying. We are, um, as human beings, we are liberated from the yokes of despair. I, I'm not saying we, shouldn't, we should definitely go for emotional, psychological healing. Definitely. Just like we would for a, a, um, a physical ailment. We should mm -hmm. definitely do that. But we are liberated from the yokes of, the, of, of, of despair um, with these gifts that Allah has given us, this gift of tawbah. And um, that would be my message there. And... Uh, for Muslim schools as well, I think I would say, let's look again and again at our curriculum and our teaching and our training of staff and what we do, you know, because we need to be fit for purpose. In today's world, our children are, uh, you know, at risk of all of the maladies of today's world that are affecting all of the children out there. Our children are falling short and, and, and um, suffering just as the other children are out there. And the uh, effect of social media and the internet on our children is is horrifying, if not concerning. You know, it's horrifying. Um, and we have to understand that we need to rise to that challenge in terms of the tarbiyah as families and parents and as schools to make our da'wah and our, our education and our tarbiyah fit for purpose, fit to help children to know who they are, to give them a sense of purpose and identity, any man, and lay those, plant those seeds, help children plant those seeds really well so that they can become 
confident children with the skills in this really confusing world, toxic world, in accordance to, to Sue Palmer, and, and you know, she's speaking some really wise words there, uh, a toxic world, give them the skills to be able to navigate that world and grow in their iman. Remember, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, uh, created us to worship and serve him. And we have the responsibility to walk in the, the footsteps, especially as, as Muslim educators, but all parents, but as well as schools. We have the responsibility to walk in the footsteps of the messengers and of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to help the next generations to become abideen as well, to become abidun, the, the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to be able to be the worshippers of Allah, to worship Allah as he deserves to be worshipped knowing that we will always fall short. That we have not appraised Allah with a true appraisal, with true estimate, um, and that we have to keep trying to do that and ensure the next generations to come do that too, because Allah is deserving of all glory and honor and worship. And mm. those signs are written about us all around us and the world around us. And, and it's our duty to schools to draw our children's attention to those signs. Jazakallah khairan, Samira, really inspiring words for all sorts of people. Jazakallah khairan. And Hudayfa, do you have any last thoughts or any advice that you'd like to give? Um, being young, first of all, is a difficult process mm -hmm. for a multitude of reasons. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest one in today's age, it might have been the different in the 90s and then the 80s, um, but... Uh, the olden days. Yeah, the olden, the olden days. days. The olden days, the black and white days. Um, <laughs> that was before no, my no, time. No, 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 okay. Well, um, yeah, so um, I think the, 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 the most obvious one is the feeling, particularly in today's very um, kind of toxic and constricted and suffocated society and environment, is wanting acceptance by another another individual just for the sake of you know being accepted um just for the sake of wanting a popular image just for the sake of wanting to be popular and being liked by other individuals or validated feeling valued ultimately though yeah. i think though i think a feeling of value is something which can be positively sought after um but necessarily yearning after something which doesn't yield anything beneficial mm. because ultimately um value you know, that's, that's quite subjective and you can deliver value. For example, you can be valuable to a young person who, you know, you're mentoring. But this yearning of wanting to be acknowledged by a particular group of, you know, boys, a particular group of girls or a particular individual just for the sake of um, your own self-pleasure or your own, um, you know, your own desire. I think it's something that we've really got to get rid of because that's, I think, at the forefront of what drives a lot of people away from, you know, either their religion or their studies and drives them towards um, quite, you know, unnecessary activities, whether that's getting involved in gang crime, whether that's getting involved in, you know, particular crowds. Um, ultimately, I think it is grounded in this wanting of approval from a particular group of people. And you've got to get over that because ultimately mm. that will lead you to nowhere. Ultimately right. it will lead you to nowhere. It won't lead you anywhere in terms of, you know, wherever you are going with that particular group. For example, um, joining a particular gang, you know, you have this, you know, this vision that, you know, these guys will be with me, you know, for the rest of my life, we'll get through tough times, this, this and that. But ultimately that never happens and it's never happened. So I'll how do you, how do you stay focused? How do you stay away from, because I'm, I'm sure you get tempted you know, well, everyone wants to be accepted. Yeah. Everyone wants to be in and popular. And how do you, what, what, what's, what works for you? I think, I think I'm at a point at the moment where 
again, like my mother, I'm not phased about being accepted by a particular group of people. I'm not phased about an individual not liking me because I am the way I am for a particular... I mean, I've not come across that. You know, most people, if not all people, are very accepting, very welcoming. Um, but I'm in a position where now I'm comfortable in myself. I know who I am. I know why I am who I am. And I know exactly what I stand for, what I would support, what I wouldn't support, and the reasons for why I make those decisions. Um, and so for me personally... I've overcome a feeling of wanting to be part of a particular group mm -hmm. or um, wanting the approval of a particular person because A, I know it's not important. Ultimately, we have much, much bigger things to be aware, to be wary of, um, to be concerned about, whether that's, you know, our religious achievements, our religious obligations, seeking the pleasure of Allah, following the Sunnah of Rasulullah or having just um, a more broader and more beneficial worldly goal, you know, um, pursuing a career by which you can deliver benefit to a larger number of people, be it through charity work, through human rights work, through representation for under underrepresented groups. Um, and that is truly something that can deliver benefit. And if I can add some value there, then I know that I will be benefiting a large group of people than if I was to um, just, you know, say a particular thing which isn't necessary, which goes against my religious beliefs, perhaps, just so, you know, someone else can, you know, someone who I look up to can laugh or someone else who I, um, you know, find cool can say, oh, you know, you're really cool. So I think it's getting past that stage and thinking that that's not really important because that doesn't define who I am. Mm -hmm. I am who I am, you know, because of X, Y and Z. Um, and overcoming that, I think is definitely a big challenge. I think now, especially because of social media, social media is if you use it for the wrong reasons or if you are exposed to it in a wrong way, you know, lethal, fatal for an individual, for their confidence, um, for their mm. understanding. Um, we hear so many stories of individuals who, you know, take their own, take their own life because of something that happened over social media or because of a um, particular stance in social media, which was attributed to them. Um, and they felt the need that, you know, oh, because this, this, and this has happened, I mean, I've got to take my life. Um, and, the, you know, it is very unfortunate to hear that. And that's just kind of the climate we live in today and the climate that young people are living in today. Very different from when yourselves, you know, were growing up. Not yeah, to say it's that... it's much harder now. Yeah, I mean, I mean not, not to say that, you know, we're playing the victim card and all olders should now sympathise with us, you know, should sympathise with us because we're all off the rails. Not necessarily to say that, but just to say that social media can either be your friend or it can be your enemy. And it's about using it for the right purposes. You see, for example, on Instagram, you've got lots of really wonderful pages which promote um, Islamic sayings, a hadith. You see loads of pages which promote charity work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about wanting, first of all, to involve yourself in some sort of self-development. And the again, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, in the good stuff. Because again, as, as um, you mentioned previously, referencing the tie your camel and then put your trust in Allah. Nothing will happen if you don't take a step. Nothing will happen... Um, if you just ask for something, if you make dua to Allah, you say, oh Allah, give me this, but you don't make an effort for it, you won't get it, regardless of what happens, regardless of you know how sincere you are, you need to take the step, hence why you've got to tie your camel. So it's important just to take that first hurdle, just to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take a step back, I'm not going to do what you do, because I understand that I need to ch make a change. And if I don't mm. make the change myself, no one will do it for me. And I can have fanciful imagination, I can have wonderful ideas of where I want to be, but if I'm not prepared to make an effort myself, then I should not expect to, you know, reach that goal. And ultimately, it's always down to the individual. Jazakallah khairan, great advice. And I guess ultimately, if we keep pleasing Allah in our mind as the highest purpose, eventually people will be pleased with us. But yeah. if we make them our focus, 
then neither Allah nor they yeah. will be pleased with us. That, so. that reminds me, if I, mm. if I can, it yeah, reminds me um, um, of where a person who, you know, doesn't indulge themselves in good, indulges them in evil, then um, that person is disliked by Allah and Allah tells the angels to dislike that person. And then from that, the people on the earth dislike that person. Mm -hmm. But conversely, if a person engages in good, you know, they're involved in charity work. They're, you know, always remembering Allah with a particular group of people or even they're just making an effort that, you know, they don't have to be a huffar. They don't have to be, you know, a scholar, but they're just making some sort of sincere effort. Then their name goes to Allah. Allah loves that person. And then Allah commands the angels to love that person. And then not just that, the people whom Allah loves will also love that person. So it proves your point exactly that if you put Allah first, you can bet your bottom dollar that you will find contentment in this world. Although, of course, we wouldn't bet because that's haram. Of course, we wouldn't <laughs> bet, but um, figuratively speaking. <laughs> so, mashallah, you you mentioned that all children are different, but you know they they've all got something special about them in their own way, right? Yeah, and that's what we've got to remember. We, sh you know, all our children are special, and all of them need to be loved, and all of them we're going to be held to account for on the day of judgment, um, and all of them have had a different perspective of right. of, of their childhood and and their perspective of us and the way we've been with them and we just have to admit doesn't matter how painful that is for parents it will be painful to hear but it, it will happen um they're going to be each of them when they've grown up when they've become balik the each of them a different separate soul accountable to allah and they've got their own life to lead and their own views to have and they won't all necessarily be um wonderfully perfect robotic children mm. and of course That's children are not they're not robots and um we have to also remember that where we are tested by our children uh, Allah bless and guide them all. I mean, um, I mean. Uh, the prophets before us were tested. You know, Yusuf Ali, Prophet Yusuf Ali Salam had, sorry, Prophet Yaqub Ali Salam had ten sons. We don't know how many daughters, but he had ten sons. Um, uh, uh, sorry, twelve sons. Yeah, <laughs> ten more, more plotted ten. to kill yeah. uh, one of them. Yeah. Ten plotted to kill one of them. The mm -hmm. best one of those ten said, "Oh, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him down to the bottom of the well, so somebody else can take him away, far away from us." Um, you know, th this and he was, was the good one, and he the was the good one, one out of those ten. <laughs> yeah. But still, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala had mercy upon those children, right. and those children inevitably, when they grew up, many scholars say they became prophets. And yeah. if they didn't become prophets, we know yeah. in the Quran, in the story of Yusuf, that they repented to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and they were sorry for what they'd done. And we know the the, the reply of Yusuf alayhi salam to them. So um, I think that that's really been something we need to remember as parents. Yeah. Never give up and never despair of the mercy and the guidance and the he's accepting our dua. But uh, also, I guess, allow them space to yeah. grow, to find their way. Because I think that's one of the things that I, I really loved about my parents. That they literally were quite hands-off mm. uh, a lot of the time and I find that very hard to be. Gave you room. But yeah, it, gave, it gave you room. Um, it's that whole thing about that, you know, the best example to use is of the of the cocoon and, and, yeah. and the caterpillar. Uh, if you try to open uh, yeah. the, the, <laughs> yeah. the cocoon, the, 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 the butterfly yeah. will not emerge, it will die. Its its wings will not fill with, you know, blood or whatever it is and, 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 and be able to spread and, and fly away as a butterfly. Um, and, and that's the thing about over mollycoddling our children, we damage yeah. them. They need to be... Ex but, you know, the, the difficulty of parenting, obviously, with all our own baggage is knowing the balance yeah. and it will constantly be in that dilemma parents will it's another form of trial we'll be in a dilemma all of the time did i do something wrong yeah. you know what do i do next how do i deal with this situation and all that we can do is put our trust in allah make dua make and try dua. and do the best and sometimes yeah. the best is letting go sometimes space, the best is yeah. give them space sometimes mm. the best is they're going to commit a sin but you can't do anything to stop it 
you know, and and thank Allah it's not a major sin, you know, because mine. And you know, it may be that some parents are, are, are worried about major sins, but there's only so much a parent can do. Yeah, and I think also have faith that at some point all of that pouring in that you did. Yeah. In, yeah. in the which is why you have to heal yourself because yeah. it has out. to be done with that yeah. love mm. with that you know space if you if you are in emotional psychological angst and agony yourself you're not there emotionally to, to hear your children emotionally and help them develop emotionally mm. and that is a precursor to all forms of development in a child mm. and we are going to wrap up but I can't wrap up without asking you what it's like to be a grandmother because <laughs> I just think it's so cute and I just can't wait myself actually to to have grandchildren of my own yeah. what was it like the first overwhelming feelings are of unconditional love oh. unconditional love in a way you never felt felt for your own children let's be honest <laughs> let's be honest with your own children you were just frightened the whole time you were just uh, in an angst the whole time and got gone into to worry and panic the whole time if if they did one step out of line what does that mean you know what will that what will become of them and and also you have the responsibility as a parent to clothe yeah. them feed them send them to school do everything mm. and it's a very it's chaotic difficult yeah, yeah an entire responsibility chaotic difficult you know at that time people are usually in the beginning of the relationship so beginning of their family life so, and, and it's constant change and it's really stressful and difficult but as a grandparent you've done all of that and it's just yeah. you know muscle memory when, when you when you um, swim you can often <laughs> swim again many years later though you haven't yeah. you've got muscle memory same with archery um, I, I did a little bit <laughs> and um, you, you get this muscle memory uh, um, and which is really important and I think we have a learning memory yes by doing it again and again you, you strengthen neurons and, and you get better at any activity but when you've had children it's such an intense experience you had plenty of practice um, when you have grandchildren you've almost reached a point I think for some many parents of intuition you've seen it mm. before you know it you yeah and you fall into the role naturally but you have this unconditional love um that is devoid of the worry and the responsibility oh, and that's that the reason why great. so many <laughs> spoil the grandchildren but you know there has to be that that like you should be supplementing not taking over yeah. i don't know what my daughter would make of this but we should you should i don't know how i am actually but um you should be supplementing not taking over you have to remember that supplement and respect and not take over mm-hmm. but um at the same time that I, I was really struck with how important a role I play in the life yeah. of my grandchildren. I've oh. never expected that. And I've really learned about that. And I play, I'm such an important person in their life. Um, and that is a part of that village experience for, for mm-hmm. raising a child um, and for their tarbiyah. And it also gives them what I never received as a child. I didn't have yeah, grandparents. Absolutely. I didn't have relatives. They've got this extra circle of love and acceptance mm-hmm. that I never received, yeah. which helps their personalities to develop and their emotional development to be more healthy and for them to feel wanted and secure and not in, in search of, as, as they was talking about, attachment with gangs and other groups and people make them yeah, feel exactly. cool and validated because they're getting that from their parents, they're getting mm. that from their grandparents, they're getting it from the extended family. Um, so the, really, that was my initial impressions. of, oh. of um, And so now I've moved, as they've got older, I've moved to, um, uh, you know, the responsibility side more and more of, you know, my responsibility for uh, trying to give as much tarbiyah as I can to my grandchildren. Oh, jazakallah khairan. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Um, we will wrap up now. Uh, so, dear listeners and viewers, Jazakumullah Khairan for joining us. Do share this episode with your family and friends and perhaps tell somebody about it who doesn't listen to it already because um, we really want to spread these positive messages and stories uh, far and wide. 
Um, inshallah, with that I will leave you. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum.